Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Tuesday morning, October the 18th, 843-661-0937. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. Good morning, Freehold. Good morning. And, um, and out of respect, what do you mean? <laughs> I mean, is it that bad? Okay. He says it is. It's early. Yeah. Um, my bad about your bad, Freehold. The Phillies win. The Eagles win. I assumed you would be um, in rare form, but you're as you always are. <laughs> Morning. Wait, how am I? Always? No, here's the deal. Here's, he I, I'm, I'm gonna call him out in public. You ready? Okay, yeah. Northern aggressors, mm-hmm. they just simply do not have this spirit of kindness <laughs> that we Southerners do. You got to pull it out of them That's, some way. I mean, somehow that there's a there's a generosity factor embedded in the DNA of Southerners, right? I don't know where it comes from. No, um, and there's just <laughs> he not. He says no, and I think we are. I think we are offended. Excuse me, we are offensive to them, Rev. We wake up. I mean, for here's being what, happy. What early I mean, in no, the morning? I think Northern aggressors believe we're just too dumb to be miserable. No, you know th- these folks are happy about anything. I mean, just you know, getting up in the morning, they thank God for things. You know what I mean? You know how they they thank God for the blessings of a new day. Uh, how stupid is that? <laughs> You're making the biggest generalizations ever. Well, I mean, that's what we do here. We yeah. make a lot of broad generalizations over the uh, airways. I just assumed some of the uh, some of the southern ism would rub off, and it does by about eight or eight thirty. You'll get in a more um, a cheerier spirit. Um, out of respect to our listeners, <laughs> see there you, <laughs> there you go. That's that's better. So, out of respect to our listeners, um, we're not going to talk sports today because this is the last political show we'll have of the week wednesday thursday friday dedicated we just do something different i mean do we feel here at community broadcasters it's important enough to give up three days of political commentary during a hotly contested election season mind you um that you know we're going to do a um uh, our part in helping the clouds raise money on behalf of the children's miracle network we're hoping you will do your part um in helping the clouds raise money for the children's miracle network so if you've got something on your chest, if you've got something you want to opine on, um, call today. So we're not going to take up, you know, one third of the show talking about the greatest college football game ever, um, the biggest travesty in Major League Baseball ever. Um, see, we're in this sensationalizing. We're not uh-huh. generalizing, Frio. We're sensationalizing uh, the the Braves and Dodgers not meeting in the National League Championship Series is one of the great travesties in the history of mankind, um, as is um the tennessee alabama game one of the greatest college football games ever of which northern aggressors watched a total of a cumulative of 20 minutes of um <laughs> and i'm real aggravated about going to this place i have found i mean it's a great place got good bar food um got a cold drink or two or three and they have televisions everywhere but the tvs are on the michigan state ohio state game the cleveland indians baseball game um there was a little television over in the corner that had the Tennessee, all uh, excuse me, the um, Auburn Georgia game a couple of weeks ago. I don't know, can't speak firsthand how they treated the uh, Tennessee Alabama game, but I believe it would have been about the same. Um, can you turn that television to the Ohio State game? Can you turn that television to the Michigan game? No, because you're in South Carolina. We're watching Tennessee Alabama. Every television in the bar should have been on Tennessee Alabama, but um. But not the case. So we're not going to talk. That's it about sports. I'm going to go back to politics. Um, what is the big political story three weeks away from the midterms? I mean, it's the midterms, right? I mean, wouldn't we agree? Yeah. I mean, we're obviously. having debates in Georgia, having debates in, um, I think, uh, Mike Lee and Evan, what's Evan's last name? Uh, Mitt Romney's buddy, uh, Evan McMullen. 
um, is a candidate, independent candidate in Utah, running fairly close to um, to Mike Lee in Utah. I mean, I think Lee wins, but it shouldn't be this close. I mean, he's a bushy, he's a globalist, interventionist, Republican. Um, this is the first time America First has gone to head-to-head with Democrats without Donald Trump on the ballot. I mean, the, the messaging of America First via um, Oz, Walker, Masters, Vance. I think J.D. Vance and um and his opponent, uh, Tim Ryan, had another debate in Ohio yesterday. You can put a bow on that one. I mean, that okay. one's done. That one's okay. done. Yeah, Ohio is going to go uh, the way of J.D. Vance. Arizona, a lot more questionable. Pennsylvania, a lot more questionable. And, of course, um, Georgia, the polls have it almost a dead heat. If the polls are right, Robert will have some polls coming out I think tomorrow and Thursday. I thought I saw a tweet yesterday from um, Trafalgar uh, attributed to Kaylee, where he said they'll we'll have some new numbers from about three or four states. Now Robert is polling some of these gubernatorial races as well because he thinks the governorships will um, decide what sort of election law they have. You know, we we live in a very weak governor. Uh, the, the governor in South Carolina doesn't have a lot of influence in the uh, the direction of the state legislatively. Um, they submit a budget, they submit some proposals, but they're ceremonial in nature. They're symbolic. There's no real teeth to any of this. Um, the majority of states have a stronger governor, so the governor does have some influence. Um, they appoint some of these cabinet positions um, that regulate how we have or have not um, elections. So, yeah, but it matters to the governor of Pennsylvania is. It matters to the governor of Arizona is. It matters to the governor of Georgia is because a lot of their executive authorities give them influence over you know some of the election law of that um of that state but i want to go back real quick and um this is kind of a um when you go down this road you really don't know where you end up because there's so many unknowns but um i went back last uh, yesterday afternoon late and um and watched a couple of videos rev and i found the videos but they were too long to play over the uh, over the airways um larry lepard you know the harvard mba who um He's an economist. He's a Harvard graduate. I mean, he's all got all the bona fides of, you know, what you would expect someone to pay attention to when they say things about the economy. But he's a perma bear. I mean, he's a guy who's always looking for. I still um, like that perma bear. What I mean, that's that's I know that's the Wall Street word. Yeah, that's I mean, funny that there's a universe of people in Wall Street that are known as perma bears. And um, and they're right when the bears when the, you know when the when the market's in a bear mood they're right when the market's in a bull they're always saying the bull mood of oh, the bull market is fake and phony shouldn't be trusted uh, here comes the bears so there's always this back and forth between the bears and bulls the bears never go away they just argue the bull market is false phony propped up and then the um and then the bulls say well the bears will miss out on the run you know they're telling you all this negativity and and bad information but I went back yesterday and um and tried to better understand. A couple of things he stands for. I went to his website and um and read some about his strategy and the um the differentiated investing approach. Um, the edge he thinks he gives to his investors. In other words, you had a I mean I think the minimum portfolio is five million dollars, so he doesn't mess around with chump change. Um, I mean you got to be a big shot, you know, to invest in some of his um uh, bearish you know mindsets. But anyway, he um he talks about his strategy. He talks about, um, and right below strategy is this newfound monetary debasement insurance. So it sounds weird, you know, monetary debasement insurance. I mean, it, I mean, it sounds like what it is. You know, I mean, you're, you're insuring against the dollar in decline, uh, the debasing of the dollar, the currency that we all prefer. Uh, I mean, how did you pay for lunch yesterday? 
I mean, your Visa card. What does your Visa card reflect? How many dollars you got in your bank account? Or you paid with cash? But it's all about the dollar. And we've taken that for granted. So here's the question. Here's the debate. And I don't know the answer to this. Larry doesn't know the answer to this. You don't know. Nobody knows. Um, Larry Lepard doesn't know the answer to this. But are we dealing with another uh, cyclical aspect of the economy, or have we broken it? I mean, is that fair to put on the table? Once again, um, some of these perma bears are always putting that on the table. You know, it's broken. I mean, it, we've, um, we've. I think the one thing he said, Rev, that I found so interesting, once again, he said it as a Wall Street or Wood, fiat has ruined price discovery. How many times have I said for five or six years over the airways, well, I don't know that we know what things are worth anymore. I mean, when you say a, um, a banana's gone from 60 cent to 90 cent, the banana hadn't changed. The value of the currency is what affects the price of the banana. The, but the banana's still the banana. But all of a sudden, Rev goes and buys a banana. It's not 60 cent, it's 90 cent. So it's gone up, you know, by a third. And, and, and Rev's going like, well, I mean, the, the banana got more expensive. No, the banana didn't get more expensive. The dollar got less valuable. I mean, there's a correlation here. So, um, so this guy believes... And he's not the only one. I mean, there's a universe of perma bears that are now beginning to really believe that um, that we've gotten ourselves into a place of a non-cyclical economy, but rather, I mean, we broke it, and how do we fix well, it? Well, there Can are it? some factors that have no, you can't look to history and see how we handled $31 trillion in debt and that's or the Fed why, balance sheet you and, talk about. And that's the point I make when I say I don't know. I mean, I think if we were under normal circumstances— and what is normal? I mean, normal somewhere between zero and a trillion dollars on the Fed's balance sheet. Um, normal is uh, the um, the debt load of the, uh, the the American economy being less than 100% of GDP. I mean, that's normal. And, and you know, that's scary. I mean, when we have that much debt, um, normal would be a 5.5% interest rate. You know, the Fed fund rate at about 35 4, 4.5%. Um, that would be normal. But what we did in 08, and here's the point I'm trying to make, and I'm not a perma-bear. I'm not somebody who understands monetary debasement insurance, but but I tend to believe that that we as Americans have the arrogance of our economy or a belief in an arrogant belief in our economy that it can't be broken. I mean, we're better than the Europeans, you know, the dollar stronger than any foreign currency, and it is. And we, you know, we're we're blessed. Here I go with the Southern word, Frio. We're blessed that that is the case. But but the point I've tried to make, and the point I'm trying to make today is um is what what lasts forever? I mean, it's almost like when you put on the table the fact that we could have broken this economy to the point of, of you know, non-repair, you, you, you're a kook. You're a nut. I mean, how can you go? How can you even believe that? I mean, we figure out everything, right? I mean, we're Americans. We figure out everything. Well, I can tell you this. Uh, the majority of liberal policies, when you look at inflation, when you look at the economy today, I mean, that's the, the driver of the election, the midterm. And if I were running for office, I would, I mean, as a Republican, I would argue that my opponent's policies don't work unless Santa Claus shows up. I mean, the only way we've done all these wonderful things for all these people who are so deserving is the Fed and the government spending money we don't have. I mean, if the government were forced to spend the money it has, we would have already adjusted Social Security and everybody be PO'd. We would have already transformed Medicare to something that it's not. We, we would have um, we would have not sent foreign aid to Ukraine. Um, we would not pay off student debt. You see where I'm headed? I mean, we, we act like this is real. We act like this. I mean, to me, it's make believe. It's a fantasy. It's a sci. It's a sci-fi movie. I mean, we're going to pay off people's student debt. We're going to send money to Ukraine. 
We're, we're going to honor our obligations to Social Security. We're going to keep Medicare intact. How? How? I mean, how do you do that? How do we spend, spend how do we send money to Ukraine, pay all people's student debt, keep Medicare in place, um, honor the obligations and commitments we've made to our seniors regarding Social Security? The only way we do it is Santa Claus. I mean, that, that's the only way this train continues to run on time. Well, once again, fiat has distorted um, price discovery. W- w- what is the banana worth? The banana's worth what the banana's always been worth. But the fiat currency has devalued the dollar to a point that you've got to, you know, change the value of the banana. Nothing about the banana's any different. Nothing about the hamburger meat's any different. Nothing about the eggs are any different. I mean, they're going to be different because inflation is going to have a dramatic impact. Joe talked yesterday, some of the inputs on farming. I mean, we've not even dealt with that yet. So the point I'm trying to make, and I know it's early, and I know most of us don't have our thinking caps on yet, but the point I'm trying to make is um, there is a way to break it. And there is a way to to um, so distort the cyclical nature of our economy that you can't put it back together. Now, now, once again, I have no idea what that looks like, but Rev, you said earlier, there's no precedent here. No country has ever grappled with $31 trillion in debt. No country has ever grappled with a central bank having, you know, um, 8 or $9 trillion of quantitative easing, cash infusion, liquidity infusion into the economy. And I'll give you an example. I'll give you a number. This is, I mean, this, we can all understand this number. Debt since 2008, governmental debt has risen about three times as fast as the U.S. economy. I mean, we didn't have to go to Harvard. You don't, you don't have to understand uh, monetary debasement insurance to understand that when debt outpaces the, um, the needed element in the economy, GDP growth is how we service debt. I mean, the money the economy generates. You get to keep a share. The government gets a piece. Local government gets a piece. State government gets a piece. Um, some goes to Social Security. Some goes to Medicare. But, but uh, you know, the productivity that you contribute to the economy creates a GDP. That GDP is big. I mean, it's $22, $23, 24000000000000 trillion. But it's not infinite. I mean, it's a finite number. It's a big number. It's a real big number. It's bigger than any economies in the world. But it's still only $22 trillion. So of the $22 trillion, Rev gets his share. He doesn't think he gets a fair share, but he gets a share. A share goes to pay gas tax. A share goes to pay, you know, whatever. I mean, all that money's dispersed throughout the economy. Um, some goes to fund Social Security and Medicare. But we're not funding those programs. And that's the point I want people to clearly understand. Now, here's the dangerous part of this. Here's where it gets real scary. Um, About 70 million Americans depend on passive income to keep their bills paid. uh, 60 million Americans participate in a 401k plan. So so let's say it's broken. I mean, let's say that that, um, some of the argument I make has some credibility. I don't know that it does. But stick with me for a second. Hypothetically, the um, the Larry Lapards of the world who believe in um, the fiat currency is ho- uh, fiat currency is, is ruined price discovery, and we really don't know what anything's worth anymore. We really don't know what's the banana worth. I don't know, man. We've got so much money floating around in the economy. We're trying to get it back under control. With quantitative tightening. Um, but but what if it is broken? I mean, what do the 60 or 70 or 80, 10,000 people a day in America turning 65? Let me say that again. 10,000 people every single day are turning 65 in America. There's an expectation they have. You know what their expectation is? To continue to live in a decent life. 
part of their living that decent life is the 60 or 70 or 80 million who have investments in Wall Street, in the markets. They, they expect a 4, 5, 6, 7, 8% return. What if it's broken and for the next 10 or 12 or 15 years, there is no return to that investment? I mean, the, the, the half million dollars that a working guy put in a, an investment account through the 30-year work life or 35-year work life, let's say that half million dollars, he thinks he's going to draw, you know, 5%, $25,000 a year until he dies. And that's been in his plan. Let's say the 500 goes to 300 and stays there. I mean, what sort of shakeup does that have to the economy? And once again, the policies only work. The policies we've enacted and, and followed upon only work if Santa Claus comes to town. What happens if the Fed says, you know, Santa Claus is, is going home and never coming back? I mean, Santa Claus just can't do this anymore. Santa Claus doesn't have, I mean, all of his reindeer are old and dead. I mean, Santa Claus can't go, you know, do his thing as he always does every year. That's the gnarly part of this. But that's the, that's the scary part of all of this. And once again, I don't know that that's how it plays out, but it has to be on the table. You have to, as a, um, I'll give you an example. I'm, I'm nearly 60. I mean, I, I never thought I'd be 60. I mean, I'm 25, I'm 30, I'm 35, I'm 40. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm in business, I'm working, I'm living, I'm doing my thing. I mean, I never thought about how much money I need when I'm 70, what it was it look like when I'm, when I'm 70. But, but all of a sudden you get 60 and you start thinking about, wow, okay. And you start really thinking about these issues because, once again, they'll have a monumental effect on how you live your life. Where do you go get a return? I mean, where, where, if, if you've made some money, been responsible, saved some money, try to put up some money, um, what happens if there is no safe place to put that money? Once again, the monetary, I'll give you, um, let's take a break. I don't want to get too far behind, but hang with me for a second. I know it's early, and I know this is kind of um, deep weeds stuff, but, uh, but we're not talking sports because this is the last day of the week. We're talking politics because we've got the McLeod Children's Miracle Network tomorrow, Thursday, and Friday, as we do every single year about this time. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. And there's other words that's been uh, been added to my uh, vocabulary here, like like doom loop and all these doom and gloom <laughs> type uh, type scenarios. And I know you're, you're talking about this, but I mean, you're not predicting this to happen, or, or are you? I just think it has to be on the table. I mean, since 2008. We always figure it out, right? Well, I mean, maybe we do. Do Since 2008, our debt has grown at three times the speed of our economy. That doesn't freak people out. I mean, that doesn't make people nervous. Well, once again, I'm not saying everybody needs to run out and buy monetary debasement insurance. I'm not saying everybody needs to buy Bitcoin. I'm not arguing with that. I don't have any idea what, what point I'm trying to make except that that there's a belief amongst a lot of experts that this is a, a cyclical aspect of the economy. My argument is this is very different than a normal cycle. I mean, if you look at Fed spending and Fed activism and Fed fund rates, historically, um, they've been within a certain, you know, uh, guardrail. I mean, there's a high and a low boy. I mean, historically, they are, I mean, they're not always the same. But in 2008, we did something that we've never done and we stayed there. We've kept interest rates at about 0% for 14 years while infusing more capital liquidity into this economy than in the history of mankind. So when we start unwinding that, do we believe that we go back to the cyclical natures of the American economy, or is this fundamentally different? I mean, the point I'm trying to make is I'm just posing one question. 
Have we broken the economy, or is this just a uh, an exaggerated version of another cycle in the economy? I tend to believe that when you borrow at three times the speed of uh, the economy growing, there, there there's a chance that you've broken it. I mean, businesses go bankrupt. You know, debt obligations are not always met. Is there a chance that some of these um, doom loop, you know, doom and uh, uh, perma bears have something of merit? I think they do. I mean, I think this is a this is a notion that has to be considered um, because of the high level of GDP debt ratio globally, nationally. Um, I think it's created a lot of economic and market dislocation. I sound like I know what I'm talking about, but I've read a lot about this. And I think once the economy and market become so dislocated from reality, it ceases to be cyclical. And you have to put on the table, have we broken this thing? And what does a broken economy in America look like? Let's go to the phone. John in Lamar. Morning, John. Hey, morning, guys. Look, um, Ken, I got, look, every time you get on the subject, it it kind of burns my ass a little bit, so I got to call you. Um, You know, every time you or any politician, not only you, but politicians in general talk about this stuff, the first thing they bring up is Social Security and Medicare. You know, when I started my work life, and I, I just turned 62, okay, when I started my work life, I paid into my retirement. I was promised then, at 62, I'd be able to retire. Now it's 65. By the time I turn 65, it's probably going to be 70. I ain't going to live long enough to see that. The problem is, you know, nobody ever mentioned the welfare, free stamps, Medicaid, uh, public housing, stuff like that, that they borrowed from Social Security to pay for our government borrowed money from Social Security years ago to pay for that, and they've no way to pay that back to Social Security. But now Social Security and Medicare get blamed for everything, which we are hardworking people that paid into it. Now, I worked for the Housing Authority for years, and I'm going to tell you something right now. There's more people living on public housing paying $36 a month for a four-bedroom house in Florence that are more able-bodied to work than I ever was. But they don't want to do it because they say the government will take care of them. So as long as you got that kind of stuff, you can't blame Social Security for the debt or anything else because we paid into that. They did. They're laying on their, their backside just having a big old time at our expense. That's running our debt up. Not Social Security. Social Security was paid into it. And I agree that there's more people retiring today than there was a few years ago because the baby boomers and all that are coming through. But all at the same time, they all paid into it. So if the government had messed, had to mess with it, it would still been there, so we couldn't be able to blame Social Security for it. So that's just my thoughts, and I'm just, man, you know, it tears me up. But nobody else, it seems like to me everybody else is woke enough that they don't want to depend on, on welfare and Medicaid and all that, you know, all that other stuff. You know, so y'all have a good day. Thank you, John. Appreciate that. Um, but it's simple. The drivers of the debt and deficit are Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid to some degree. I mean, I'm, I'm with John. Let's clean up some of the waste, fraud, and abuse. I mean, let's make people go to work to earn a living. Let's stop giving people things they don't deserve in the name of the American taxpayer. Sign me up. I want to be captain of that team. That's not the driver of the debt. The driver of the debt is Social Security and Medicare. When, when Social Security was implemented, the average lifespan of an American was about 67 and a half years. Today, it's 80. That's 13 more years that people are receiving benefit. 27% of Americans draw Social Security longer than their work career was. The fundamentals are broken. Once again, we're talking about cycles are being broken. 
the model of Social Security is broken because people are living 13 years longer on average than they were 50, 60, 70 years ago. I mean, I'm, hey, I hear John, and I, and I respect the frustration, and he's exactly right. The person with an EBT card doesn't have any business with a cell phone newer than mine. The person living in a government-subsidized house doesn't have any business with HBO, and i got to be careful about not buying HBO because it costs too much. I am with you, John. I am 100% on board with, with, with waste, fraud, and abuse. There are people abusing the right to live off the American government. But when you look at our spending, it is crystal clear to me that the majority of, of drivers of the debt are Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security. Social Security was a good model when people died at 67, 68, 9 years old. People now are living in excess of 80. 70% of, excuse me, 78% of Americans will live in excess of 80 years old. The, the model's broken. And the American um, political class doesn't have the courage to go to John, me, Rev, and Freehold and say, look, the deal we made with you guys was a bad deal. People are living much longer today than they did 40, 50 years ago. We've got to revisit the model. I mean, they've made a little bit of tweaky changes. I mean, it, you know, I think I was born in 63, so mine's gone from 65 to 67 or something like that. But, I mean, people are beginning to live to be – I mean, I, I read the other day something, and it might have been Forbes magazine. If you're under the age of 40, there's a 50% chance you're going to live to be 90. I mean, the medical advancements, the technology, all the uh, the cancer treatments and all the, you know, uh, smoke cessation programs and all these other sorts. You know, it's the dirty secret, one of the dirtiest secrets in all of American politics. We need people smoking cigarettes and dying at 65. Seriously, I mean, that's what we need. We need people smoking cigarettes, abusing tobacco and dying at about 65 or six years old. But we have a demographic slash spending problem. The demo of the baby boomers is creating, and you're right, you paid into that and they spent your money. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not giving the government a break as it relates to that. But, but the drivers of our debt are our Medicare spending and our Social Security spending, period. Let's go to the phone. Here's Dale in Florence. Morning, Dale. Morning, guys. Um, and, and, and Ken, you're on the money with a part. I was going to bring that up about people living longer. That's why I've chosen to work until full retirement. Um, and, and it's so complicated, and, and, and certainly we're not going to figure it all out here on a Tuesday morning for in South Carolina, but John's right. We have been into it. Ken, I guess my question is the drivers of the debt, and you've You've named these programs. Now, are the programs that we paid into driving it more than the welfare and the Medicaid and all those things? If, if you got rid of most of one, would the other one be okay? Uh, could, 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 we, could we keep up with the other one? Uh, that's one of my questions. I mean, we do have a lot of people living on a government dole in this country, and we've got a shortage of workers. Let me ask you a question, Dale. Let me ask you a question. So you're going you're going to work into full retirement. Um, yes, sir. Let's say if you get all of your money that you paid in with interest by the time you're 85, and you live to be 91 for the last six years of your life, did you live on the government dole? Probably so. Uh, you see where I'm headed. I mean, I'm not, I'm not accusing you of anything. I'm I not do. blaming anybody for anything. That's the dilemma. That's where we are. We model Social Security for people to die at 70. 
and they're living 10 more years, and there's 10,000 people every day turning 65, the math just simply does not work. And just let me throw this in there, and, and, and this is just piling on. I'm, I'm going from the macro to the micro here. We also have chosen, our, our, our government has, that when we're having all these problems, they've chosen to raise taxes and to enact policies to drive up the price of goods because they drove up the price of, of energy, which, you know, drives everything else. So not only do we have this massive debt that we're dealing with and, and, and these cyclical events that are happening, and, and, and you're right, I don't think this is, is quite part of the cycle because it's, you know, we're getting hammered again so hard. But, but, but the current administration has, has enacted policy, policies to exacerbate everything. And that's, I mean, they're just dumping it on us ten times worse. You guys have a good day. Thank you, Dale. I mean, and that goes to the point I've tried to make, and I've tried to say it over and over and over again. And if I were running for president of the United States, my message would be, I mean, it would have to get complicated, obviously, with some of the nuances. But until we get a degree of seriousness on our debt and our energy policy, we are a nation in decline. Let me say that again. If we don't become grown-ups and understand whether whether John's aggravated about the um the waste, fraud, and abuse, and some of the people living off the government dole, uh, whether I'm is concerned about Social Security and Medicare, um, if we don't get serious about addressing the debt issue in our nation, the fact that we're spending a trillion dollars a year that we don't have, we've already spent $31 trillion of those tri- uh, that money that we don't have, and we've got to find a sound energy policy. We've got to understand that that maybe, just maybe, we end up with a renewable energy contributing more to the economy than fossil fuel. But right now, we've got to secure sound energy policy, and we've got to get serious about our debt. Does that mean raising Social Security? I think, excuse me, the um, the eligibility eligibility age of Social Security? I think it does. Does that mean cutting some of the Medicare um, advantages? I think it does. I mean, I just think that's the nature of, of, of what we got in our, ourselves into. I'll give an example. Um, Social Security is 21% of our debt. I mean, we're spending, forget the money we take in, that the excess we're paying out is 21% of all dollars spent by the federal government. Health insurance, Medicare, Medicaid is 25%. So nearly half of the entire budget that our government collects, but both in borrowed money and collected money, is spent on Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security. Um, the interest on debt is about 9%, soon to be 10 or 12 or 11%. So, so when you think about it, guys, when, when you, um, I mean, the, the, the interest on debt by 2025, uh, 2026, it'll be more than defense spending. Defense spending is currently about 13, 14% of all money we collect, uh, both borrowed and collected. Um, the, the interest on debt's about 9, 10, 11%. It's hard to measure right now because we know that we've got some bonds that'll be reissued at a much higher rate. I think that number goes to 1.2 trillion. Most of the experts believe that number goes to 1.2 trillion. I mean, if it goes to 1.2 trillion, it's equal to defense spending. So you got four line items in your budget in excess of a trillion dollars. Social security, and that's the deficit. I mean, forget the money we collect. That's the deficit. Why? Because people are living to be 90 years old. And the, and, and the model was for people dying at, at 70 years old. So, so you've got Social Security in excess of a trillion dollars. 
You've got defense spending in excess of a trillion dollars. You've got service on debt in excess of a trillion dollars. And you've got government-funded health insurance in excess of a trillion dollars. There ain't a lot of money left over to do much of anything else. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. When the Social Security plan was implemented in the federal government, I think it was 1935, the average life expectancy of a male was 58 for a woman was 62. The retirement age was 65. Pretty damn conservative plan, if you ask me. There were 42 workers to every one retiree. We, we've changed the retirement eligibility age from 65 to 67 in some ages up until 70 for full benefit. Um, so we've, we've tweaked. I mean, we've changed it by three, four, five years. But, but the average man today is living 79 years. That's 21 years. The average woman's living 80.5 years. That's about 19 years. We got 2.8 workers for every one retiree today in America. Once again, in 35, when the plan was implemented, we had 42 workers for every one recipient. Today, it's 2.8 workers for every one recipient. Look, I'm as mad as anybody about the EBT card, the housing, and all these subsidies that we give, you know, deadbeats who won't go to work. I mean, that infuriates me. I mean, I cuss more than you can imagine when I see and sense those things. That's not the driver of the debt. I'm sorry. I mean, it's as frustrated and bothered and hot and infuriated as you get. That's not the driver of the debt. The driver of the debt is Social Security and healthcare spending, Medicare and Medicaid. Until we get serious about those realities, we're going to continue to get further and further and further down this. What I would argue is, um, at some point in time, a tipping point rather than a cycle of the economy. Let's go to the phone. Joe in Hartsville. Morning, Joe. Yeah, good morning, guys. It's amazing every time the Democrats get in power, it's always everybody else's fault. It's not their policies. It's big oil, big pharma, big stores. But Santa Claus can't live forever. Like you were saying, that was one of the things I was calling about was actually when it was implemented and you came out with the right numbers. Life expectancy was 58 and 63. So how do you collect? They never, they never expected it to be paid out like it is because if they did, when they gave you your social security number, they would have opened a bank account with your social security number and put that number, that money in it so that it would be for you. Now they've added so many programs. I remember during 2007, eight, and every time we have a downturn, the amount of disability claims going on Social Security goes through the roof. And now they're adding all these other programs. We've made people comfortable in their poverty. I mean, they're adding all these disabilities, like these learning disabilities. These people, and I, I see them on Facebook and TikTok every first of the month. These 15, 16-year-old kids with learning disabilities because they have no one to help them at home, so they go into special education, and they go on disability immediately. Now, every first of the month, you see them on TikTok, they get their $800 disability check, and they cash it, and they lay it out on their arms and say, I just got paid. And you see it all the time. You know, when it started with these programs, 
we started with the EBPs, but not the, the, the food, food stamps. And that was uncomfortable. So they, they made a card to make it more, you know, that's, that's their visa card, just like my visa card. But when you see somebody go in, like you say, it's, that's not the big drivers. It's all the, the programs added to Social Security. Something's got to give. And the only thing I know about that's going to get us out of this is, is free market capitalism, and it will seek its own level given the chance. Y'all have a good day. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate that. You know, and um, and once again, the entitlement programs, uh, Social Security, Medicare, you pay into that. No question about it. But but you can't. We're 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 not. The money that comes in is not covering the bill. I mean, that, that's just a reality. It's not your fault you're living longer. Not my fault I'm living longer. But it's a reality the government has never addressed because the way you address it is to say to you know. Um, Joe and Dave and, and me, I, hey, man, uh, that deal we made with you that you could get money at 65, I mean, that was a bad deal. We never anticipated people's life expectancy to go from 58 to 80. I mean, we never imagined that people would live 22 years longer, but they are. So so here, I'll, I'll ask this point. Um, do, does anybody know how much they paid in Social Security? It's not a transferable asset. Should be, but it's not. I mean, I don't get to make those rules. Hold on. We'll be back in just a minute. I want to get to some more timely stories i mean we could talk forever about the debt and some of the issues within the debt what's the drivers of the debt um if you're interested in that sort of um conversation go to the peter g peterson foundation's website i mean i have found they do as good a job of explaining peter j peterson peter j peterson uh, foundation i have no idea so i think this guy made a lot of money um started a foundation the foundation was to find out and explore you know where some of the debt issues lie uh, remember the Simpson Bowles Commission? I mean, they referred to the Peter Peterson uh, Foundation a lot. Uh, he's, he's hired some economists and um, talking heads. Uh, so, so I'm very serious people about, you know, the fiscal challenge we have, where some of the solutions, um, are we doing anything in regards to the debt? I just want to go back to something that John and um, and Joe were talking about. And, and um, uh, every caller so far this morning has um, has mentioned this. Look, I'm not, I'm not um, condoning turning a blind eye to frivolous spending by the government when it comes to some of the, um, some of the programs, some of the welfare programs, the substance programs that we've um, allowed to exist. And I'm talking about supplemental security income, supplemental nutrition assistance programs, uh, child at chip, child insurance, child insurance, uh, child's health insurance program temporary assistance needy families remember that t uh t-a-n-f and we got these abbreviations um but but the point i'm trying to make is um housing assistance um earned income tax credit all of those are welfare programs to some degree there's seven or eight or nine or ten um different there's about 80 welfare programs but they reside in these seven or eight um you know divisions of government so to speak um but we spend about $1.3 trillion a year in welfare. Medicaid is about $850 billion of the $1.3 trillion. So all the other welfare programs together don't equal but about half what we spend on Medicaid. Remember, Medicaid is for poor people. Medicare is for old people. 
That's how Strom Thurmond remembered and recited to make sure he got his speeches right uh, when he was up in his 90s and still serving in the Senate. But we spent about $1.3 trillion on welfare in America. Some's probably legitimate. A lot of it probably is not legitimate. But the reason I taught Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, because of the $1.3 trillion in welfare, $850 billion is on Medicaid. Why are we spending um, about twice the average of other wealthy countries in healthcare? I mean, that would be a good reason. Well, I can tell you why. The healthcare world has done a good job of lobbying the federal government to make sure they get their way. Insurance companies, big pharma healthcare providers have done exceedingly well in making sure their piece of the pie is as abundant as they think they needed to be. We spent about twelve, thirteen thousand dollars um healthcare costs per capita in America. Um, Germany, they say, has got the best healthcare system in the world. They're spending about seven grand per, you know, uh, capita in uh, in that country. So there are a lot of reasons to explore the debt. The Peter G. Peterson Foundation, I have found, uh, what are we doing? What can we do? Why have we gotten ourselves in this mess? But I stand by my comment. I am frustrated about welfare spending. I don't like it any more than you do that somebody's getting a tax dollar they didn't work for nor deserve. But it's it's Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security driving um, the federal debt. Let's go to the phone. Here's Mike in Darlington. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. Uh, uh, great show, and I can't think of a more important topic for right now than uh, this debt thing. And I'm glad we've got the premier professor emeritus from the Tampa Coast School of Economics Management and Common Sense to uh, explain things to us. I don't know where we'd be without you, uh, Ken. But uh, the uh, but uh, I, I I agree with the other callers. I think they they've got a better handle on it than uh, and see the danger more clearly than. Uh, the people that are up there in charge, and we need to redirect our course. Maybe we don't, we can't, we can't quite get out of the uh, field of icebergs right quick, but we can hit out of it, and that would be a big help. And these people, uh, they don't, they don't seem to want to get out of it. They want to head further uh, north. They want deeper into the. Uh, into the field of icebergs, and uh, it's a dangerous time. But uh, if we could just uh, do about half these government agencies, we could do without. I mean, I can't for the life of me. I cannot see what the Department of Education does, or the Department of Energy, for that matter. Uh, they're they're totally uncalled for at this point. And uh, redirect that energy to something productive. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. You know, there's there's a macro. I, I, I'm the bearer of bad news this morning. There is one macro out there. That is encouraging, but discouraging. Here's the um, the number of kids American families are having. I mean, that's in decline. Um, it's it's about a half child per family in the last 20 years. I mean, the American families, um, if you able to get married later, having fewer kids, that is a macro demograph that, that will provide some relief down the road. But that's, you know, 50 or 60 or 70 years down the road. Let's go back to, um, and I'll put a bow on this. Let's go back to what I argued about, you know, fiat has ruined price discovery, um, you know, monetary debasement insurance. What does America look like if the Fed sticks to its guns and doesn't purchase the debt of the federal government? 
We're talking about all these cuts that need to be made. We're spending $1.3 trillion in welfare, $800 billion to $850 billion of the $1.3 trillion on Medicaid. Um, Medicare is north of a trillion dollars. The deficit Medicare runs is nearly a trillion dollars. So let's just for argument's sake, let's play a hypothetical here. What if the Fed says that we've got to rein in spending? We've got to control this debt. Um, if not, we're going to break it. I mean, we're going to break the economy to a point of, of no return. I mean, you can't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. What do politicians do? If the Fed says loudly and clearly, we're not buying that debt. I mean, you may sell it to the public. You may sell it to China or, or, or Japan or some of these other countries, but we're not purchasing that debt. I mean, we, we're going to make it loud and clear. We're going to sit down with the chair of the Senate Finance Committee, the House Ways and Means Committee, and we're going to make it emphatically clear that we're not going to be a part of ruining the country. We're not going to be a part of breaking the greatest economy in the history of mankind. We, we've, we've, um, we've enabled you folks as long as we're going to enable you. We're not going to allow you to spend a trillion dollars a year that we don't have. See, there's a big argument in the economic world about who is in control. Is it the government or is it the Fed? I mean, I've read a lot about this recently. You know, I mean, is the Fed obligated to buy government debt, excessive spending? I mean, is the Fed responsible for that? What if the Fed, um, you know, got, got pretty ballsy and said, we're not doing that any longer. We're just not going to buy the debt. And the Chinese said, we'll buy the debt, but we need a 5% return. We need a 6% return, a yield on, on the debt we're buying. Some of the reissuance of bonds, we talked a little bit about that. When the old bonds roll off and the new bonds come up to finance $1.2 trillion in debt, um, you see where I'm headed? The debt payment is going to be $1.2 trillion, not six or seven or $800 billion because of the increase in finance charge. Well, what happens to all of these programs if the Fed says we're not buying the debt any longer? I don't know. I mean, once again, I'm, I'm, I'm asking these hypothetical questions I don't know the answer to this. I mean, I have no idea what the world looks like if America has to balance its budget. I mean, if America takes in $4.5 trillion next year and it's obligated to spend only $4.5 trillion next year, where does the trillion-dollar cut come from? I mean, do we cut defense spending? Do we reform Social Security? See, I think that's the only saving grace we have. I think if the Fed were to be serious and, and, and you know, for the long run, I'm talking about, you know, in the next 10 years, say, nope. Nope. And and next thing you know, the um the debt on so, the service servicing the one point excuse me servicing the thirty one trillion dollars in debt costs us one point three one point four one point five trillion. I mean, imagine what the interest rate would be on governmental debt if the Fed said thank you but no thank you. Let's go to the phone. Here is Williams in Orangeburg. Morning, Williams. Good morning. Hey, um, Ken, I want to talk about um those keepers. What do you think about those keepers? I know very little about the Oath Keepers. I've heard their name bandied about in some of this January 6th trial, but nobody I know pays any attention to that trial, so I kind of joined them in mass. I don't pay any attention to it because nobody I know is paying any attention to it, so I don't know much about the Oath Keepers, Williams. Uh, you, you, you don't, you're not paying attention to it? Man, they tried to overthrow the government. I don't watch kangaroo courts and show trials. But if I want to watch a movie, I'm going to watch a good movie, not a bad one. Okay, let's talk about the, uh, the queen of America first, Martha Taylor Green. What do you think about Martha Taylor Green? She is the queen of America first? Yeah. Says who? Yeah, she sure enough act like it. I thought Tulsi Gabbard was the queen of America first now. <laughs> no, it's Martha Taylor Green. 
Okay. Williams, Williams, let me ask you a question. You ask me a lot of. Let me ask you a question. How you gonna feel? How you gonna feel three Wednesday morning from now when you wake up and the Republicans and America Firsters are in charge of the House and Senate? America's in trouble. America's in trouble. Ask a woman. House took a woman rights away. House Hunter what Biden and Joe Biden gonna they feel? They took a woman rights away. They done took a woman right. Democracy is on the table. If you if you vote. Republican, you're going to lose your democracy. Williams, do you think a lot of people are going to vote Republican? Do you think the Republicans are going to win the House and Senate? No. You don't? No, hell no. <laughs> <laughs> hell no. You, 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 know, you know what, man? 80,000 people in Vietnam died for democracy. And you got this clown, this clown head of your party, Trying to destroy democracy, he had six time, six time chances to fight for democracy, and he ducked out. He's a coward, and that's why we're going to win. We're going to win the primary. But Williams, but Williams, if the Republicans win the House and Senate, certainly you'll respect the outcome of the election. Huh? You'll you'll respect. I mean, if the Republicans win, you'll respect the outcome of the election, won't you? I mean, you'll agree that. They're, they're in charge because they won the they won the I mean the voters speak and the voters spoke and they got the most votes and they win the elections. So I mean you, you, whether you like it or not, you'll accept if in um, um, if in three weeks the Republicans win. Let me ask you something. How many denials? No, but you got to ask. I, you can ask How me something. But, out here in the Republican Party. How about this governor running for governor of Arizona? You talking about Carrie Lake? Yeah, Carrie Lake. Man, I wish she was running this for governor of South Carolina. Like- don't you? Huh? I wish he was running for governor of South Carolina, don't you? Well, 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 the governor we got in South Carolina is too old. He need to retire. <laughs> How old is it anyway? I think Henry's about what seventy one or two. He, I think he's seventy five. I think he's seventy five. He's younger than I'm Biden. Sorry. Then yeah, he's he's um yeah he's uh, he's young enough to be Joe Biden's son. Seventy <laughs> five. Uh, it's time for him to retire. He needs some new blood. <laughs> but anyway, your your party don't accept losing. If they don't win, something wrong with it. Something wrong. But with Williams, it. you haven't answered the question yet. Now, if the Republicans get lucky and win three weeks from now, will you accept the outcome of the election and they will be in charge of both chambers of Congress? I accept it like you accept it. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. Thank Have you, Williams. Day, Have a good day. Appreciate that. Um, I mean, you got to give Williams credit. I mean, he thinks he's preserving democracy and um, keeping the country headed in the right direction. Um, but there are some inconsistencies there. Henry's too old, but Biden's not. Right. Um, the Republicans, <laughs> Williams, I'm telling you, I know you're not on the phone. Hope you're listening. Get ready. I mean, there, there are a lot of tea leaves out there that you can read um, that lead me to believe it's not going to be a wave election because the, I mean, it's just not, I mean, it's, you can't have a wave election under the current circumstances. And by that, I mean so many Republicans playing defense. Now, in 2024, if the same sort of economic conditions exist, it'll be fundamentally different. I mean, there's no doubt about it. But the Republicans are playing a lot of defense in some of the Senate races. In 24, the Democrats play defense in 23 states, the Republicans only in 10. Um, but, but if that were the case today with the economy, inflation, crime, um, the things people are paying most attention to, not January 6th. Um, I read a poll yesterday, Harvard did a poll, 
you know it's got to be right if harvard did it and they had um january 6th is about 13 to 14 on the list of top 20 things people to pay it's like two percent is you know two percent of voters believe that january 6th of the commission's work will influence um you know their decision on who to vote for and why to vote um for you know candidate x y or z it's just kind of interesting we had a lot of debates this week and we'll have a few more um next week if if I can't express to our listeners how encouraged I am by the performance of Blake Masters and J.D. Vance. I mean, I continue to say, uh, I think J.D.'s going to win hands down. Blake has a chance. He's probably still somewhat of an underdog. But these guys have acquitted themselves exceedingly well. And um, they've said more as newbies on the political scene than any of the old guard has ever said, uh, despite having been there for 25 or 30 years or 35 or 40 or 45 years speaking of old guard and i want um, to mention this since you mentioned both tulsi gabbard and carrie lake overnight tulsi endorsed carrie lake for governor of arizona okay tulsi is a woman with no party um waiting to find oh no i think she's looking for the highest bidder if you, <laughs> if you want to know the truth but um but yeah tulsi has been kind of the um i don't know rev the poster child for you know i didn't leave the democrat party the democrat party left me and she's kind of um hanging out deciding which um, move to make next. And um, Tulsi has a bright future. The one thing Tulsi has that some of these other, um, I want to be careful here, some of these other unique females have is she seems relatable. I mean, there's a likability about Tulsi that I think exceeds all the others. Um, I'm telling you, Carrie Lake has a chance to win in Nevada. I mean, excuse me, in, um, yes, in Nevada. That's Arizona. Carrie Lake in Arizona. She has a chance to win, no question about it. She is a very um, personable, very aggressive. I've noticed that younger people have a lot to say about Carrie Lake. Um, she's a performer. She's a news anchor. I mean, she knows how to play the camera. She knows how to put on a performance. She knows how to play the bit. That's probably Blake Masters' blind spot. I mean, Masters does not know how to perform. He does not know how to put on somewhat of a show. And politics is a theatric production. Carrie Lake's really good at it. Um, Dr. Oz won the Republican primary in Pennsylvania. Why? Because I think he knows how to play to a crowd. He understands hosting a television show. I'm not saying it's good or bad for American politics, but politics in America has turned into somewhat of a production, and those people who know how to play that part, play that role, they seem to do um, exceedingly well. Let's go to the phone. Charles and Florence. Good morning, Charles. Morning, guys. Uh, Just uh, two quick points. Number one, I did not get to see the camp uh, Stacey Abrams debate. If you could just throw a quick comment on that. And then I'm the one who was going to appoint myself king, but I think I'm going to appoint myself uh, chairman of the Fed because I think that might have more power. But seriously, I do have a quick question, Ken, on the Fed. Is there an appointment where somebody can come in or do they have unlimited control or is it tradition? where they're left alone and i'll take it off the air thank you there's a big debate i'm reading a lot about the fed enabling the government or has the government taken over power of the fed i mean there's a big debate in academia and intelligentsia and um amongst economic theorists about who really has the sway here is the fed more powerful than the government is the government more powerful than the fed um it's kind of an interesting debate it gets real um, complicated it really does and it goes back to um certain bylaws and rules and regulations i mean the fed is ob- obviously I mean, they profess to be a non-governmental agency well, i was thinking that earlier when you talked about what if the fed just didn't and wouldn't buy any of the government spending debt 
Um, I was just thinking, wouldn't the Congress just step in and say, hey, we're in charge here? Well, I mean, that, that's the big Print debate. I mean, that, that, that's the argument. We appropriated it. You make it happen. And that's the debate that some of these um, academics and scholars are having about the role of the Fed, the role of the central bank in conjunction with the government. And, um, and it's kind of a back and forth. I mean, it's a little bit like, you know, are, are we in a cyclical economy or have we broken it? I mean, that's kind of a debate we're having. Uh, I think we can all agree that we're in, in, in uncharted territory when it comes to spending and the role and responsibilities of a Fed, what the government can or cannot do. Um, but I just think it's an interesting argument. Um, once again, if, if Larry Lapard believes that fiat is ruling price discovery, I believe that as well. How do we restore price discovery? How do we get back to a place where Apple stock is what Apple stock should be? How inflated is Apple stock today because of fiat currency? You don't know. I don't know. Nobody knows. But it's inflated. I mean, it's had, I mean, the, the, the markets and the economy have been significantly distorted, but because of, you know, Fed interventionism, the government's spending more money than it has. Take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. Real quick, Charles asked about the debate in, um, in Georgia. I didn't, I didn't watch the debate. I read an article in Politico, read another article in TheHill.com, read one last night, uh, really this morning. Um, but but they, they, they kind of, I mean, it, it was a pretty aggressive debate. Um, it was put on by the Atlanta Press Club. Herschel took a pass on the Atlanta Press Club debate because it was uh, kind of an ambush. I mean, he saw it as an attempted ambush. Kemp is probably going to get enough place that he can take a chance and go to um, hostile territory. Here's my concern again. you got to get 50% of the vote to win, right? Plurality does not win in Georgia. Shane Hazel is a libertarian candidate, believe it or not, who's getting about 2.5%. Kemp is at exactly 50%. And some of the polling, he's five points ahead of um, of Abrams and most of the polling. It's 50-45, 50-44. Um, Hazel, um, from what I read, made as part of his delivery last night the Fed. We've got to abolish the Fed, abolish the Fed, um, uh, pull funding for public education. I mean, those are libertarian philosophies and notions. But if Hazel can get 2.5% of the vote, which I think he may because he's touching nerves there with defunding public education and abolishing the Fed. He gets 2.5%, keeps Kip under 50%. You have a runoff, and anything happens in a runoff. That's Abram's strategy. It's kind of interesting that the libertarian candidates on the stage in these debates are all in swing states. I mean, there's a libertarian in Arizona. There's a libertarian in Georgia. There's a libertarian in Pennsylvania. There's a libertarian in Ohio. They're all polling somewhere between two and three and a half points. That's enough to make a difference in some of these real hotly contested and very close races for the U.S. Senate. So, yeah, Shane Hazel was very aggressive um, going after both candidates. And if he can get two and a half, three percent, we'll probably have a runoff in Georgia. And once again, if you've ever run for office, the one thing that freaks you out is the unpredictable nature of runoffs. Let's go to the phone. Jim and Florence. Morning, Jim. Hey, good morning, guys. So, uh, so to Williams, you know, I don't know a thing about a, about the Oath Keepers or a bunch of old people trying to overthrow our government without a single gun. Uh, but what I do know is I know I've looked in my kitchen cabinets and seen uh, empty space where baby formula is supposed to be, not because I couldn't afford it, but because you literally couldn't find it on the shelves. You know, I, I do know that I've had to float paying for gas on a credit card um, because it's 2 and $3 more expensive than it was under Trump. 
I do know that the sound of gunfire around me has escalated since Biden took over, you know, to include hearing drive-bys and, you know, the increased sound of cop cars um, with their sirens. You know, you know, crime's escalating everywhere. You know, I do know that there was um, Black Lives Matter activists going on a summer tour of insurrection, burning down black uh, businesses, black-owned businesses and black uh, neighborhoods. Um, I, I do know about those things, you know, those things in the real world. I do know about those things. And what William speaks about is a prime example of why politicians, not, not just the Democrat Party, but why the swamp, the Mitch McConnells, the Mitt Romneys, um, and the rest of the Democrat Party have lost touch with me and you, Ken. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate it. You know, there was a day... And I can remember my time as lieutenant governor that I would, I mean, I'd preside over the body and I would, um, as dil- diligently as I could, you know, um, orchestrate and facilitate the the going zone of the U.S., excuse me, the South Carolina State Senate. And I can remember many days saying, I have a lot in common with that guy. And it'd be a rural Democrat. It'd be a Democrat from Kershaw, Vincent Shaheen, or a couple of other Democrats from rural places. And I would always reflect within that, man, I have a lot in common with that guy. I mean, I'm a Republican. He's a Democrat. He's a little more sympathetic to government, a little more trusting of government than I am. But there was not this we're from different planets mindset. Um, The latest version of the Democrat Party, I have nothing in common with. And, you know, I think when we started on this show, I mean, I was about as nonpartisan a Republican as you could imagine. Uh, You know, I considered a compliment one day when a guy from the Statehouse came to me and said, you know, when you ran your ads, I couldn't tell if you're a Republican or a Democrat. And something has happened. I mean, Obama turned me into a very right-wing. I mean, if you look at the media definition of right-winger, I'm a right-winger. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I mean, I am as a, um, I want everybody to go to the poll in three weeks in every state uh, that that you can imagine to go vote Republican. And it's not an endorsement of the Republican. The the Republican's a little bit like the dollar. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) It's not because I think they're all that. I mean, they're, they're not great. They're just not anywhere near as bad as the other. You know, uh, the yuan or the peso or some of these other foreign currencies that have been so devastated because of, you know, reckless spending and irresponsible governance. So when I say go vote Republican, it's not a resounding endorsement of the Republican brand. I mean, I have a lot of issues with the Republican Party. In fact, I like the fact that we're watching Mitch McConnell squirm and Mitt Romney squirm. Um, I hope Mike Lee wins without Mitt Mitt Romney's. Uh, I wish we could abolish, talking about abolish the Fed. I mean, if I had a magic wand, there's about 15 or 20 Republican office holders that I'd vanish from the planet, put them back in their private sector business or job if they've ever had one. So it's not a resounding endorsement of the Republican Party when I say go vote Republican. But, But when you look at the economy, crime, inflation, abortion, I mean, I may think the Democrats are on Mars. When it comes to practicality of policy and how to address some of the issues that average Americans are facing. And um, and I think, you know, I've said it, I'll say it again. I think the duopoly has failed America. I think the duopoly has been entrusted by most voters in America to do the best they know how to govern this very complicated country. And I think they failed. And I think that's why people are beginning to look around at America first as a reasonable alternative. That's why I'm such a fan of Masters Vance. Oz and Walker. Those four embody the sustainability or not of a movement. 
Can two of those four win and America First have a good day? Yeah. I mean, I think if Walker wins and if Vance wins, that's a good day. If three or four win, that's a better day. If four of the four win, it's a complete and total indictment of the media saying Trump endorses these crazy candidates who win primaries but can't win generals. I mean, it just obliterates that narrative. It doesn't. Uh, it doesn't apply any longer. We can. We can. Uh, we can endorse and vote for who we choose to endorse and vote for without fear of you know them being too fringy. Remember, in the in the Tea Party days, we had the lady who said, you know, I'm not a witch. Well, I've I'm, I'm not had any of that yet. I mean, I know we had the revelation with Herschel Walker about the accused, uh, the accusations this lady's levied against him. But it seems the voters aren't taking that. I mean, when when the lady, when O'Donnell in, and said, you know, I'm not a witch, I think a lot of Republican voters said, wow, my candidate says she's not a witch. I don't, I don't know how enthusiastic I am to go to the poll. But, but I think Republicans now say, I don't care what Walker's done. I don't care if Oz is a little bit different. Well, as evidenced by Williams' calls, I mean, he, he tries to paint like Marjorie Taylor Greene into that corner, well, basically. I mean, look, Marjorie Taylor Greene has a place in the party. I mean, if She's the voters of her district in Georgia have agreed to cons- uh, you know, agreed via the consent of the casting of a ballot to send her to Washington, she, she has just as much right to go to Washington and say what she feels like needs to be said as Mitch McConnell does. McConnell doesn't have any more authority than Marjorie Taylor Greene does. I mean, he's a senator. He's got seniority. He's a big shot. He um, chairs committees and he's leadership. He's either majority or minority leader. AOC on the other sure. side. Sure. I mean, you're right. I mean, AOC's not fringe, but Marjorie Taylor Greene is. That's the media narrative. And I just believe the public are not. When 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 people said about, you know, O'Donnell um, admitting she's not a witch or conceding that she's not a witch, it, a lot of a lot of Republican voters kind of like, oh, man, I wish we weren't here. <laughs> And I think now when, when the accusations are levied against Herschel Walker, the, the Georgia Republican voter says, I don't care. I mean, I don't trust you guys anyway. I mean, whether he did, whether he didn't, I'll let him hash that out and, and figure out what he did or what he didn't do. But at the, end of the, at the end of the day, he's not a radical. He's not a nut. He doesn't support, you know, um, a woman being allowed to abort a baby as the baby's being born. He doesn't support that. And I think, you know, when I looked at the rural Democrat when I was in the South Carolina Senate, I didn't see a single Democrat who supported aborting a child as the child is born. That is kind of the official position of the majority of Democrats in America today. So stop with the lecturing of how radical and right wing the conservative movement has become via the uh, America First influence. I don't think there's anything radical about America First. You know, the only people that think America First is radical those who have put the, the deck chairs in place and are threatened and, and their livelihoods or their, um, their way of life is at risk if the government doesn't run in a certain way. It doesn't matter if it's in the public's best interest. It needs to be in their best interest. And as long as it's in their best interest, public be damned. And America First seems to be committed to making sure government works for who? The masses, the people, the American working class. Intervention is bad for the American working class globalism is bad for the how many rich kids died in wars how many rich families have had their lives torn apart because their business left to go to china malaysia vietnam korea you see where i'm headed the 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 american working party excuse me the american working class has not had adequate representation for a long time now will the america first movement honor their commitment i don't know you don't know we shall see in the long run, but this globalist interventionist 
mindset that has dominated um, the Republican Party really since Reagan passed the baton to George H.W., and George H.W. was a globalist. He was an interventionist. He was a big believer in the military-industrial complex that I think has dominated conservative thought for far too long. So I am one that am extremely grateful that we seem to have liberated ourselves from this, um, I keep using the word imperialistic worldview, but but it is that. Let's go and to the phone. And Jim, I will add this to your comments, by the way. When you comment about Williams, I want to say Williams. I'm so glad you call, and I hope you call as often as you can. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's go, let's go to the phone. <laughs> Here is Sam in Darlington. Morning, Sam. Morning, uh, Ken. It's a good topic this morning. Um, and way back uh, about 6 o'clock, you were saying, the question is, are, are we in a, a temporary downturn with this recession that the Fed is apparently going to impose on us to protect the dollar? Um, or is this, or is this the the big crash? You know where where the system comes unglued. Uh, I, I recall, you know, in in scripture, Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, predicted, I mean, in some detail, uh, what was going to happen to them if they didn't straighten up. And um, but the the big, you know, the big. Um, the big crash and the you know totally defeat taken into exile and all that that that, that happened a hundred years later uh, after it was predicted. So it's hard to know when the big thing is coming. But on the other hand, we don't know it's not going to come soon either. Um, I would I think one good investment is to invest in our neighbors. Uh, I mean, I'm not. I wish I'd started that of you know helping local charities and just just getting to know people and and uh, building community because whenever the big crash comes, um, we're gonna need that and that'll that'll be better than your than your four hundred one k. And uh, the other thing I wanted to say is the the military industrial complex i mean the whole american militarism is one of the big drivers not the only big driver of our debt uh and it is also i think offensive to god the way we're we're treating other people and fooling people into going and and the there's a monetary motive there the um the defense industry, you know, they they're good lobbyists, and the Pentagon are good lobbyists, and they are, you know, they they're feathering their own nest while they're talking about defending democracy and all that. So that's all I got for today. That's a lot. Thank you, Sam. Appreciate that. Yeah, I mean the the um, it's kind of interesting. The Republicans historically have been the enabler of the military-industrial complex, and it seems to me that this America First movement that has caught fire within the ranks of the Republican Party are not committed, at all committed, to um, the military-industrial complex of days gone by. Let's go to the, uh, let's take a break. I don't know if we got a call or not. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. the number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Tony in Calhoun County. Good morning, Tony. Good morning, gentlemen. Um, in 1982, I raised my right hand and I swore to support and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And throughout my entire term of active service, 
The U.S. Army never gave me one class on what the Constitution said, what it meant. So for my entire time of service, I had no idea what I was supporting and defending. I didn't have a clue. I would have done anything my lieutenant or sergeant told me to do, um, blindly. Um, around 2009, 2010, Stuart Rhodes, um, and I believe Stuart Rhodes was a U.S. Army Ranger, which says something about his character. He went on to get his law degree. Um, he found a core group of people, um, police officers, retired police officers, active police officers, soldiers, and they started an educational organization called the Oath Keepers. Uh, so they could teach people what it really meant, what the Constitution meant. And I think that's a completely honorable thing. Um, then after the, uh, the, you know, the 2020 vote thing, I, I don't know exactly what happened in the organization from, you know, 2009 and 10 onward, but they, I know they continued to do their teaching and their, their outreach. Um, but um, after the election, they provided security to, you know, events that were, you know, like, let's count the vote and check the vote in Atlanta. They were there. Um, then after January 6th, one of the original um, board, of direct, board members, who was, I believe he was an Oklahoma police officer, he um, decided to leave the board because he saw the organization going somewhere he wasn't comfortable with, that Stuart Rhodes was associating with some new person for the last couple of years that nobody knew that, I mean, he was being directed by this other guy and Stuart's character changed. Um, so, you know, I'm just speculating that somebody in intelligence was uncomfortable with, you know, having soldiers actually know what their commitments are, you know, or saying no to their commanders when they're ordered to do things which are unconstitutional. In other words, that the organization was perceived as a threat, you know, to, to the way they wanted to run things. And so the info, you know, in my opinion, they infiltrated it. They uh, set up Stuart Rhodes and now they're using Stuart Rhodes and the Oath Keepers, you know, you know, bad mouthing the organization and, um, you know, making it out to be less than it originally was. And, and I don't know if somebody turned Stuart or somebody blackmailed Stuart or, you know, but there were some really hinky things going on there the last few years. That's all I wanted to call about. Thank you, Tony. There, there's some chick involved in this. I mean, I know that's sexist sounding, but there's some, I mean, Stuart Rhodes, I mean, Tony gave a, an accounting of kind of how we ended up with um with True Keepers, but there's some, I mean, there's some sexting in here. I mean, that's texting, you know what I mean, sexually uh, provocative texting one to another. Um, I think her name is Kelly. I don't know her last name. Her first name is Kelly, but... um. But but my, as my grandfather would say, he fell in with that, you know. <laughs> and when he fell in with that, I mean, things kind of went um went south. Here's an interesting proposal or, or proposition: What is our obligation when the government does something we know to be unconstitutional? I mean, what what is your right? You know, what what is your responsibility? I mean, you yell and scream and call a talk radio show, but what what actions are you allowed to take when the government does something you know to be unconstitutional? Kind of interesting that Tony would say, you know, I raise my right hand and swear to the Constitution. I really don't know what I'm swearing to, but everybody else did it, so I'm doing it as well. How many people are formally educated or informally educated about the um the ins and outs of the Constitution? How many people understand you know the Constitution? How many people are even familiar? 
with the Constitution. What would you say? Hey, have you ever heard of the Constitution? Yeah. Tell me something about it. Um, let me get back with you on that. You know, I've heard of the Constitution, but if you're asking me something specific about it, let me get back with you on um on that. I just think it's an interesting um proposition. What do we have? What right do we have? What obligation do we have? Um, what empowerment do we have? What authority do we have if we find the government to be doing something unconstitutional? We know, I mean, that, that's an argument a lot of conservatives make. Well, the government's not doing what's constitutionally sound. It's, it's prohibited by, you know, the Constitution from doing this, but it did it anyway. What sort of rights do you have? I don't know. Back in a minute. 843 is our number. Dr. Will Bolt, Rock of the Tennessee shirt. He had a good weekend. Tennessee Volunteers and the Buffalo Bills um, had big wins over the weekend. The Lord was kind to me. It was yeah. a very, very good football old, weekend. You hear that Southernism? <laughs> the Lord was kind to him. He's from Buffalo. But he's been down right. south long enough to know the um, the spectacular graciousness that Southerners so exude that Northern aggressors just have a hard um, time struggling with. Hey, I want to do this, Rev, real quick. Mm-hmm. Uh, programming note. You do this better than I do. Uh, we got about a couple of more hours of political speak and, um, you know, uh, whatever, it is we do. Radio, whatever it is we do here. Uh, we got two more hours of doing it in the normal tradition. And then tomorrow, Thursday, and Friday, we're going to do something different. It is the 20th annual McLeod Children's Hospital Children's Miracle Network Radiothon. Uh, we did it last year. Actually, the last two years, we did it from the studio. The previous two years, starting in 2018, we did it on site from the hospital. And we are back on site this year, uh, which makes for you know a great experience. And there's obviously um, a lot more activity going on around what we do. But yeah, we'll be broadcasting from the concourse at McLeod, right outside of the cafeteria area. And it is the Children's Miracle Network Radiothon. We'll be asking for pledge donations uh to uh to help support mcleod children's hospital it is an annual event for us and yes you're right the next three days this show will be totally about the kids at mcleod i'll add this too uh if you remember last year we put together a I lot didn't of ask you to give a speech i was asking you to kind of <laughs> programming uh, just trying to give the information okay, just set it up a little bit bolt you got time i mean you're good <laughs> take your time okay, okay good. good good we we have auction items i just wanted to mention Okay, we had some pretty special items last year. We have donations from the Carolina Panthers, the Atlanta Braves, ESPN, South Carolina Gamecocks, Clemson Tigers. I'm just saying we'll have items up for auction. We'll give you all the details over the course of the Radiothon starting tomorrow. But if you're a fan of any of those sports teams or whatever, tune in. might find something you like to bid on. Okay. And that's all I had to say about that. That's a plenty. That's a <laughs> yes, plenty. That's a plenty. Thank you for the um, see what happens thank when, you for I, the when brief I, update. When I get into your time here, you <laughs> don't like that. <laughs> thank very you much for the brief you. update. Um, <laughs> it's 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 kind of interesting, and I'll tell you what what will happen. Um, they'll bring these kids and these families who have had situations occur that they never imagined they'd have to deal with, and it does put everything in perspective. I mean, it matters it who the president is. It matters who the governor is. It matters what politics or how politics affect all of our lives. It matters that we're allowed to have these disagreements and debates and dialogue. But some of these stories are just so ah, unbelievably life-changing. Um, and when you hear and see and, and watch how those families have dealt with those unfortunate circumstances, it really and truly does put everything um, back into perspective. Dr. Will Bolt, history chair, Francis Marion University, is still with us, um, despite Rev's elongated <laughs> diatribe. Thanks on, for hanging around, no. Dr. Bolt. You're welcome. No, it's a noble 
a noble thing you're doing. So my, my, my hat's off to you. Now, so. speaking of nobility, um, <laughs> let, let's go back to the founding fathers. Yeah. There are a lot of conservatives who make the statement, the founding fathers said, or the founding fathers believed. They act as if all these people sang off the same sheet of music. <laughs> why has, and I don't think liberals do this as much, why has conservative Americans try to convince themselves that the founders were almost monolithic in their views of government and, um, you know, the, 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 the way the interaction of the private sector and the public sector, I mean, they, they were very much a mixed bag oh, sure. uh, of a lot of different thoughts and philosophies. But, but why have historically we looked at the founders almost as if they were one of the same? Right. Again, a lot of these guys uh, couldn't really stand to be in the same room with one another. Some of them carried their hatreds for one another to the grave. But I think it's a lot of it. It's just where we where we are right now that uh, a lot of people, a lot of my colleagues on the left want to tear down a lot of these individuals. And if they made one little mistake, uh, if they if they own slavery, if they were on the wrong side of one issue, then any good they may have done. We, we, no, we, we can't talk about it. They are a bad guy. They need to be consigned to the dustbin of American history. And so, and again, a lot of conservatives like myself, would, well, it's, you know, nobody's perfect. Everybody has their, their warts and their flaws. Uh, we can certainly sort of overlook, uh, it's, you, know, you take the good with the bad. And so yeah, that, I think that's where we are. Okay. Two of our founders are on Mount Rushmore. What if we replace the two non-founding fathers who were on Mount Rushmore <laughs> with two more founding fathers? Who would you make a case for? I mean, you got Washington and Jefferson. They're up yep. there already. Um, what other two should be considered? Once again, if we had a Mount Rushmore of founding fathers. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the easy one, the, the slam dunk would probably have to be Hamilton. And Hamilton is kind of trendy mm, right I now. I don't like that. So, I don't like yeah, that. The, the big governor. But he, well, I mean, it would be fitting in America. You've got him and his rival, Jefferson, right next to one another. And so they're two guys who would certainly warrant. Um, Benjamin Franklin is a good guy of, of compromise, kind of always up there. Roger Sherman of Connecticut. Uh, but maybe James Madison. I mean, he is the the father of the Constitution. If there's anybody who's maybe been hasn't gotten his 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 due, and and Madison was the the quintessential public servant that he was Jefferson's right hand man, and Jefferson called the plays. And Madison, if he didn't like it, he would still execute it. And when it worked out, Madison stepped back and let Jefferson get the credit. If it didn't, if it blew up, Madison would throw himself on his sword and take the take the heat run interference for jefferson okay we congratulated the tennessee volunteers for their exceptional weekend of college football good way to put um, it well i mean they did i mean they quite beat, beat the um i mean the 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 alabama crimson tide have won about every other national championship in the past 12 years or so i mean that's a pretty um impressive track record so so hold on to that thought for a second so in college football we have these teams that we know by mid-season we're going to be talking about are they a playoff contender or not it's Alabama, it's Clemson, it's Ohio State, right. it's Georgia, it's um, it's Oklahoma. The Blue Bloods. The Blue Bloods. Um, and all of a sudden, Boise State shows up. Once in a while. Or yeah. somebody else shows up. Um, if Jefferson, Madison, Adams, Franklin, um, Washington, if they are the the Oklahomas, the Georgias, <laughs> the um, you know, the Blue Bloods of college yeah. football, who is the Boise State? I mean, who, who is the team or, or who is the founding father that we don't talk enough about but did make major contributions to the founding of our nation? I think, I think you, 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 you fast forward. It's the, the guys who come after the founding fathers, your Henry Clays, your Daniel Webster's, your, your John C. Calhouns of South Carolina, 
who take what the founding fathers bequeathed to them, solved a lot of problems, expanded the country. Did you say bequeathed? Yeah, yeah, you know, I, I don't know what it means. I, I've heard other smart people use it, so I'll, I'll try and pass, you know. Yeah, and, you, and you had to call me out on that one. Yeah, I, I couldn't spell it, but yeah. But these are the guys, right, who, again, pa- sort of paved the way uh, for the greatness of the United States that's going to come at the end of the 19th century. Uh, three guys, very, very important guys. Daniel Webster is from the North. Henry Clay is Kentucky, represents the West. John C. Calhoun from South Carolina sort of represents the South. The problem was all three of them bumped into and couldn't stand Andrew Jackson. And they were all rivals. And, of course, Jackson's great quote on his deathbed was asked if he had any regrets. And he said, I have but two, that I, I didn't shoot Henry Clay and that I didn't hang my vice president, John C. Calhoun. So, so <laughs> and he was serious. That's my, that's my, that's my favorite Jackson uh, okay, quote. Okay, yeah. let, let's stay with Jackson for a second. I know this is hard for you to do, but let's talk <laughs> a little Andrew Jackson. Uh, you groupie, you. Um so we looked, um, we we're talking about how many Republicans will be in this house. You know, yep. the most there's ever been is 246. I mean, that's the most Republicans that have ever been in, in, in the U.S. Congress, uh, not the Senate, but the, the House of Representatives. Um, I think there'll be roughly 235 to 240 after the elections of midterm. That's a good guess. But, yeah. but during, I mean, before we had the Republicans and Democrats, we obviously had the Jeffersonian. I mean, it was the Democrat Republic. Right. Um, the Whigs. There, there was actually a period of time in American history you had the Jacksonians and the anti-Jacksonians. Someone actually yeah. ran as an anti-Jacksonian. <laughs> what exactly was the platform you run on if you signed up to be an anti-Jacksonian? <laughs> Again, you just it didn't matter where you were. So you had all sorts of guys like, hey, I like the tariff. I hate the tariff. I like the bank. I hate the bank. Oh, you dislike Andrew Jackson? Welcome aboard. Here's the secret handshake. And so that's what... The, the Whig Party event, all the anti-Jackson guys became Whigs. And again, that's all all it was. And so it's not a good idea to kind of form a political party on an idea of negative identity, just an intense dislike of Andrew Jackson. Because once Andrew Jackson goes, well, then what do you what do you stand for now that Jackson is out of the way? And here's the, the, here's the analogy. Here's the reason I bring that up. To me, that's, <laughs> you know where I'm headed. Uh, I mean, th- th- there's a, there's a, um, a comparison... Or a, um, I, I don't know, I, 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 there's there's a way to talk about Jackson as there's a way to talk about Trump. Yeah. Uh, the, the Democrat Party today in America and many members of the Democrat, even the Republican Party to some degree, have this anti-Trump element. Oh, sure, Is there no. anything similar about today with the anti-Trump movement to the anti-Jackson movement? I think it's, it's, it's the same thing, right? This is the glue. Uh, the Democrats right now are probably hoping and praying he runs in 2024. They want him out there in these midterms, right, giving speeches because they think that's going to gin up their base and get people to come out. He's probably the only chance that Biden has of winning a second term. DeSantis, somebody else, uh, probably walks uh, into the White House and can start writing his inaugural address. Trump is the guy, if, if he's on the ticket in 2024, then a lot of people who don't like Biden are going to come out just because they can't stand Trump. And they'll vote for Biden. They'll hold their nose invite for him. I think he's the lesser of two evils. And so, yes, lots of individuals just utterly despised, loathed Andrew Jackson. They thought he was a modern-day Caesar. They were afraid he was going to. There was one guy who said when Jackson was president, uh, he went to bed every night expecting to wake up in reading in the newspapers that Jackson had taken over the government. So that was the the fear that many anti-Jackson people had. So who was the captain of the anti-Jackson team? I mean, the anti-Jacksonian movement. Who would have been... 
Yeah, who has a C on their jersey and <laughs> says, you know, everybody follow me? Yes, it was Henry Clay was sort of the the voice and the leader of this. Uh, Andrew Jackson. But what did he base that on? I mean, in other words, I understand the concern they had of Jackson. You know, he's a totalitarian and all these other that you hear about Trump. Same thing you hear about with uh, with Trump now. But but when Jackson, when someone said, okay, uh, I mean, when Clay, when someone said, okay, Mr. Clay, um, I get you don't like Jackson. How do you think a government should be run? Um, And if you're in charge, how will it be run? No, and Clay was philosophically just opposed to Jackson's character. He famously said, you know, killing 2,000 English people at New Orleans, that, that, that shouldn't make you president. And this got back to Jackson uh, when Jackson invaded Florida and killed a bunch of English and Spanish people there. No big deal. Uh, Henry Clay opposed him in the House. But again, Clay is in that Hamiltonian vein. Big government, strong national bank. Jackson, again, he's the heir to Thomas Jefferson's. So there's a, a political and economic difference between the two guys as well. But again, Jackson always referred to Clay. He called him the Judas of the West because uh, Henry Clay stole the election of 1824 from him. And he says, the Judas of the West has closed the contract for his 30 pieces of silver. His end will be the same. Clay never hung himself like like Judas, but Jackson couldn't stand him. Good deal. Is somebody on the phone? Let's go there. Breeze joins us now. Hey, Breeze. Hey, what's up, guys? Morning. I just turned off. I just got a break, but I'll, and I wanted to ask um I've been looking up the word a fascist. And to me, it sounds like a fascist is someone that treats government basically as their supreme being or God. And they don't allow any dissent. Everything's for the government, by the government. And I was wondering if uh, the doctor felt that that was a, a reasonable explanation of fascism. And also, I was wondering, does he anticipate... Civil unrest if the Republicans take the House and Senate. I'm of the opinion that uh, BLM and Antifa and every, any group similar to that is going to go out in the streets and start rioting and protesting. And then what the Democrats will do is say, we have a no to do nothing Republican Congress that's not helping Joe Biden um, you know, cut inflation. But I was wondering what his thoughts were on that. And if I was an undecided voter, Tell me what, what has gone on in the past two years that would make me vote for Joe Biden over Donald Trump or or, or DeSantis or whoever else the Republicans put out there. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. Fascism. Yeah, what, is, what is America's history with that? Yeah, that's one of those words if you really want to get uh, academics riled up. you know, it's, it's it, it takes ideas from both the left and the right. And sort of the the unifying or the glue for a fascist, which which everybody agrees on, is it supports an element of totalitarianism, right? Total control, the military, uh, the economy, uh, oftentimes by just a single individual. Obedience to government, or does it necessarily have to be government? No, you're very deferential. If you don't defer to the government, what's going to happen to you in a, sure. in a fascist state? You're, you're, you're going to disappear. It, so. th- was that sort of mindset, was there any of that in early American history? No, we were, again, everything that the founding fathers were for was to make sure that you weren't going to have. So despite the disagreements, despite the Hamiltonian philosophy and the Jeffersonian philosophy, there, there weren't fascists in the room oh, who gosh, felt no. the American people no. should be subservient to its no, government. Everybody believed in a Republican form of government, Republican with a small R. We're not talking about sure. a political party, but where the people are sovereign. Yes, and nobody, nobody was 
talking about that use, and that was a that was a bridge too far. When did that rear its head? I mean, you're an early American historian. Sure. When did when did the word fascist become um, in vogue? Probably in American twentieth century, right? Nineteen thirties as a result of the the global crisis in the Great Depression. Some of the New Deal. So, well, exactly. Some Americans there was sort of a, an American. There were elements of it, supporters of it here in America. It's mostly a European product. That sort of gets exported over here. But some into people America. embrace the notion of fascism. I mean, they, they, you know, they, they don't shy away from it. Sure. Sure. Right. I mean, you need a strong individual, right? To just things are so broken. Just you have somebody who is going to have total control. This is how you how you fix it. It's just not in our DNA to go that way. It's it's getting more in our DNA now yeah. than I'm comfortable with. <laughs> I'll say that. I mean, obviously, it was not in our founders' DNA uh, because they dealt with the British Empire. Uh, but but it's a little bit more in our DNA. That I'm comfortable with today. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Rick and Sumter listening to WDXY. Hi, Rick. Hey, good morning. Hey, Rick. Man, good morning. conversation right in my wheelhouse. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, but one thing, uh, uh, comparison between Trump and Jackson, a lot of it was personal. It was not um, policy-based. And, you know, you got it, when you're thinking about Jackson, you got to think of the Peggy Eaton affair, <laughs> that kind of set the tone for him in dealing with his cabinet, particularly Calhoun, whose wife, you know, snubbed Peggy worse than any of them. Well, Florida, yes. And he tended, you know, to bring the personal stuff to blend it in with policy to a level that, you know, we usually don't see. Rick, um, is that, is that, I mean, for, from your perspective, is that the, 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 the greatest similarity of Jackson and Trump is the personal disdain that some people have for the for not the policy, not the agenda, not not where he wants to carry the country, but rather just his personal, his behavior, his yeah. antics, his um, his demeanor. Absolutely, that's kind uh, of interesting. What, one other thing I wanted to just throw in there: if you look at any portrait, official portrait of Jackson, you can see his scar on his <laughs> cheek, and he received that as a thirteen-year-old POW in Camden, South Carolina. When a British officer told him to shine my boots, boy, and Trump flipped him off and, you know, the guy nicked him with a sword. And he was proud of that scar, yes. and he made sure and showed it in every official <laughs> portrait that he had after that. Thank you, Rick. Appreciate that. From one historian to another, Rick's a historian, a history teacher. Um, and I know you guys kind of run in that circle, yeah. better, better understanding. But, I mean, you've, you've talked a lot about the similarities of, of Jackson oh, sure. yeah. and Trump. But, but you, would you agree that it's more personal than it is professional? Right, and Jackson, I mean, if you know this more than anywhere, if, if you're going to be probably, you need thick skin. And Andrew Jackson didn't uh, didn't embrace his critics. Uh, maybe one of the better the best stories is uh, January of 1835, Jackson goes to the Capitol uh, for the funeral. A South Carolina congressman had died. As Jackson is walking out of the, as he's trying to leave the Capitol, an assassin tries to shoot him, has two pistols, fires them both at Jackson. They both miss fire. And they estimated the odds that this was one in 100,000. And Andrew Jackson, rather than retreat, takes out his cane and attacks the would-be assassin, beats the snot out of him. Congressman had to pull the president of the United States off of his would-be assassin. And so in typical Jackson fashion, you know, when the, when the dust settled from this, Jackson blamed two politicians that he didn't like. He blamed John C. Calhoun and George Poindexter uh, and Jackson said, found out the assassin had painted Poindexter's house. So he said, well, Poindexter must have put him up to this. And he ruined the guy's political career. And Poindexter's like, I 
The guy was a deranged lunatic. I just heard him the paint line. I didn't put him up to shooting you, Mr. President. I'm supporting you. And Jackson said, uh-uh. And this killed his his political career. And a lot of Americans, when this assassination attempt happened, this was the first one, they were digging a hole in the Capitol, and the plan was to put Washington's body. And eventually Washington's family said, no, he's going to stay at Mount Vernon. But there was a lot of must or dew in the air, the moisture in the air. And so they thought, well, George Washington, one last time, the father of his country, came to the aid. And because of the moisture, this is why the powder didn't ignite. But the police took the two pistols, and immediately when they pulled the triggers, they both fired. And so, man, a lot of people are like, this is a divine act of providence that Jackson survives this. That is so interesting. Very yeah. interesting. We'll take a break. Dr. Thanks. Will Bolt, History Chair, Francis Marion University. Take a break. Back in just a few minutes. 843-661-0937 is our number. Dr. Will Bolt, History Chair, Francis Marion University and devout Tennessee volunteer <laughs> Buffalo Bill fan is with us. So more excited about Tennessee or Buffalo this weekend? No, I, I, I told my wife I wasn't going to be greedy. I mean, I'd like both, but... The Tennessee game, this one, he hadn't beaten Alabama in 15 years. This was the one. And again, after Tennessee won, you know, maybe celebrate a little too hard. I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a pass on Sunday morning. You know, told my wife, you go to church without me. And said, you know, no, you're going. You got a lot to be thankful for. And I put in a good word for the Bills as well. At that point, yes, I was. I got greedy in it. It worked out. Hey, the Lord was very kind. Yeah, but the uh, the, the Lord of sports seems to frown upon those that he, um, I mean, he shines a bright light from time to time. But then he puts you in that dungeon, and he doesn't let you out yeah. for a long, long time to uh, to test well, your perseverance. I was, I was on bended knee when the they were lining up for the the kick. At the, the ugliest end. made field yes. goal I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> it was a field necro knuckleball <laughs> that made its way over the uh, over the goal I, post. I didn't think it was going to clear it when he when he got it. It was like it was it was straight. It was like oh. Well, I can honestly say this as a as a Gamecock lifer and a fan of the SEC because that's our conference. Um, I've never watched a game that good and not care who won. I mean, I really could care less. I'm not a Tennessee fan, not an Alabama fan. I have great respect for what Alabama's doing. Nick sure. Saban is a right. Hall of Fame. I mean, he's a founding father kind of coach. Yeah. And um, but the judge, the job Josh Heupel has done Just in, in his two. second year oh. is phenomenal. I mean, it really is. We're proud of what Beamer's done and getting a road win at Kentucky. Chance yeah. to beat a uh, you know a pretty good A and M team at home. But Heupel is only in his second year. And um, with, really has that team program completely turned around. The, the previous coach. Yeah, no, no question about it. So let's go back to the founders for a second. Because <laughs> um, cause you, you talked about, why was, why was Jackson so colorful in his behavior, yet such a student of the Jeffersonian form of government? In other words, Jefferson was everything that Jackson was not. Yeah, yeah, but but Jackson was a Jeffersonian disciple. Explain no, that. No, exactly. And Jackson is very very rough around the. He's he's a Westerner. He's from the frontier. And Jackson early on when he was making his mark, rising up, he was invited to a, a dinner party, and Jackson thought it would be kind of kind of cool, kind of like a, a frat boy move, if you will. Uh, he brought the local prostitute as his date uh, to the big dinner party, and sort of raised a lot of a lot of eyebrows. Jackson thought it was all in all in good fun. But as Jackson matured, I mean, Jackson realized that the, the Jeffersonian blueprint, uh, the agrarian economy, this was better. This was the best uh, view for the country. Uh, Jefferson wanted us to be a nation of farmers because in Jefferson's philosophy, the farmer is the only guy who's truly free. He's not indebted to anyone. And yet if Hamilton has his view, his way, we'll have all these industrial workers. But again, they're dependent on 
the guys they're working for, for their paycheck. If he mismanages the business, these guys are out of a job. And of course, you had to vote in public at this time. And so again, if the overseer, the guy who's running the, the business, sees that you don't vote the way he wants you to vote, uh, you're probably going to get a pink slip. And so again, Jackson, Jefferson, again, the guy, the farmer, the guys who toil the land, and they are the essence of America. They're completely free because they don't got to depend, depend on anyone. But was that realistic? I mean, I understand that, you know, the agrarian economy and cotton and all these other, I mean, slave, I get all that. Yep. I, mean, I understand the, um, the way things were then, but could you, if you were to be critical of Jeffersonian government, could the criticism be levied that it was unrealistic, impractical, it was too nostalgic? It was too uh, too romantic. It was you about could, you, you. Could you could argue that, but that for the most part we made it work. I mean, the country grew and prospered. Uh, in the end, right, it takes the Hamiltonian vision, uh, industry and railroads before we're really able to extract all of the wealth from the soil and the land. But again, Jefferson's philosophy was: you just need the government to carry the mail. We don't need a, a standing army. Each of the states have their militias, and this is how you how you cut expenses. This is how you make sure you don't have a debt. And on January 8th, 1835, Andrew Jackson tells the country, ladies and gentlemen, the debt is paid in full. So for the only time in American history, there was no debt. Uh, The next couple of years, until you had a panic in 1837, the government had a surplus. It gave money back to the states, and the states could use it for education, infrastructure, whatever they wanted, no strings attached to it the good old days you talk about nostalgia yeah there it is so um who and when did we begin reestablishing some sort of working relationship with um with great britain it's really not until the the 20th century end of the end of the 19th century so no founding father ever made an overture to the british empire the former british empire great britain um and said look i mean we need to let bygones be bygones I mean, we, 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 we have the same set of values and views and, and concepts of life. Um, let's, let's put that behind us and, and advance a common yeah. agenda. No, no. You just, the, the war so of that 1812, never happened. when the war of 1812 ended, it's really more of an armistice. And the expectation was, all right, we're just going to lick our wounds. We're going to see you in another five, 10 years. And so for the American people of the early 19th century, the early 1800s, the expectation was there's going to be a war with Great Britain, a third and final one. We came close several times. Even during the Civil War, uh, Lincoln's Secretary of State William Seward said, uh, let's pick a fight with the Brits. This will bring the South back into the country. And Lincoln famously said, uh, one war at a time. And so it's not until the end of the 19th century, early 20th, once Germany becomes the big boy on the block, uh, then the British start to kind of start make some overtures to the United States and again, this is when we start to realize we have this old uh, common language, uh, common religion. There's a lot more that we had in common. And Germany was an empire, a, a totalitarian state. The Brits have a democracy. And so it was just a natural marriage at the start of the 20th century. So who other than France did we have a, a strong relationship? I'm talking about foreign policy and diplomacy. So, so when we are a fledgling baby of a nation and we're trying to, I don't know, uh, advance America's way of life, around the world who were the allies other than the french that um that did business with the united states well again this was george washington's famous advice to his country beware of entangling alliances and so for the most part we had adopted a a policy of isolationism and even we had been allies with the french during the revolution uh hamilton the federalists said 
that alliance was null and void once the king was dead. Once the king was guillotined, uh, Hamilton said the treaty was with the king. The king's dead, and so therefore we don't have we don't owe the French anything. We nearly fought a war with the French uh, early on uh, in the early the early 1800s. But no, for the most part, uh, we have the Monroe Doctrine, and James Monroe says, "People of Europe, if you want to kill each other and let God sort it out, that's fine by us. Go ahead. Don't meddle with any of the affairs in the Western Hemisphere. If you do that, you can do whatever you want in Europe." It's a classic example of saber-rattling, uh, but it becomes a hallmark of American foreign policy, and nobody in Europe calls us on it. So even the disagreements the Hamiltonians had with the Jeffersonians about the, the role of government, the functioning of government, the states' rights, the central bank, that they, they were in agreement that we should be, wear, be, be leery of entangling ourselves with, with foreign countries? And Jefferson, Jefferson loved the Frenchies, had spent a lot of time over there. Jefferson believed, right, we needed to come to the aid of the French. He was a little hypocritical there. For sure. Oh, absolutely. And again, Hamilton, he wants to tie us to uh, Great Britain and the British model, and it's Washington who's kind of caught in the middle, and so Washington says, I'm going to split the difference. We're, we're going to remain neutral. And so this really becomes just the bedrock. And again, a lot of uh, pre- historians, when they rank the presidents, a lot of them still put Washington as number one. It's not Lincoln. It's not FDR. He's the right guy at the right time. He sets the right precedence. He has the right tone. And again, this decision that we're not going to be the world's policemen, at least under his watch, we're just going to stay out of the affairs of the world. This is a bedrock of American foreign policy until uh, 1949 when we joined NATO. And we are just, we are not really involved in global affairs. And a great part of Washington's legacy. Okay, last question. If Jefferson had such an influence on America's, I mean, in other words, the fingerprints of Thomas Jefferson are are probably as much a part of our DNA as any other fingerprints in the history of, of our nation. Why is he not considered one of the greatest presidents ever? I mean, he's obviously considered one of the great political theorists and thinkers sure. and philosophers, and, and he thought America in existence. But why does he not get the um, the credit of being a great president? Had Jefferson bowed out after his first term, he probably would be. Uh, Jefferson's second four years, 1805 to 1809, uh, were just four years of misery. And this is when the British start attacking American ships, impressing American sailors. Lots of Americans wanted us to declare war against uh, Great Britain. And Jefferson, certainly, he had the votes in Congress. He could have lifted a finger, and he would have had a declaration of war. But Jefferson had worked so hard to cut the debt, and so Jefferson said, this isn't worth it. So he orders an embargo act. We're not going to let American ships out. He thought this would bring the Brits to the bargaining table. It didn't. It blew up in his face. It was very, very unpopular. So again, Jefferson's second term, uh, he hightailed it out of Washington in 1809, uh, never came back uh, to the Capitol. So So when he left, he never returned. Never bothered to come back. I didn't Mm -hmm. know that. And that's kind of an interesting nugget of information as it relates to Thomas Jefferson. Thank you, Dr. Bolton. Hey, as always, Dr. Thanks, Dr. Guys. Will Bolton, once again, um, not just um, lecturing us on American history, but um, celebrating a Tennessee and Buffalo Bill win that um, I think was one of the greatest college football games I've ever seen. Absolutely. I- I've heard a lot of people, that's the greatest <laughs> I've ever seen. I don't know about that. I mean, there's been a lot of really good college football games, but it was um, it was as exciting a game that I think I've seen in a long, long, long time. And when you're watching and don't care who wins – that's, yeah. that's a bit of a luxury. You know what I mean? Um, Tennessee scores. Wow. Alabama scores. Wow. Um, <laughs> it, this is not a game you're 
emotionally invested in. But congratulations to the Vols. Thanks again. Appreciate it. We'll take a break. Back in just a minute. Let me ask you a question of our listeners, and this is this is for Republicans and Democrats alike. If you're a Democrat, do you believe AOC is extreme? If you're a Democrat, do you believe Marjorie Taylor Greene is extreme? Same um, question to the Republicans. Do you think AOC is an extremist? Do you think Marjorie Taylor Greene is an extremist? I mean, beauty's in the eye of the beholder, right? So Marjorie Taylor Greene says some of these things that sound extreme uh, to the media. They may not be very extreme to the voters of Georgia, her district in Georgia. Um, she argues that she's entitled to more significant influence in the uh, in the body that is the U.S. Congress because of the loyalty she has shown and basically the whipping she has taken on behalf of America first. Now, now we'll see how that plays itself out, but she actually wrote a book, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, everybody writes a book. I would outlaw politicians being allowed to write books. I mean, that's just a way for them to self-indulge and make money off the um, the public service. You know, I mean, they're, they're all public servants. How many public servants have ever written a book? None except if you're a member of Congress and you declare or you declare yourself a um, a public servant. But in her book, she says that she thinks she deserves um, a higher degree of influence because she's been unabashed and loyal about the America First agenda. Um, is that the case? If you're a Republican, how much do you want Marjorie Taylor Greene to be on center stage? I mean, if you're a Democrat, how much do you want AOC to be on center stage? Are there similarities? I mean, I'm asking you, Rev, are there similarities between AOC on the Democrat side and Marjorie Taylor Greene and the Republican Party? I think very much so. But And I would not say that Marjorie Taylor Greene is any more extreme than AOC, at least from my point of view. She says, and I'll quote, I think that to be the best Speaker of the House and to please the base, Trump's going to have to give me a lot of power and a lot of leeway. <laughs> and if he does it, there's going to be very unhappy. There's going to be people very unhappy about it. I think that's the best way to read that. And that's not in any way a threat at all. I just think that's reality. Uh, that's kind of an interesting statement. I deserve to have more influence because I have been um, kind of the most outspoken advocate for some of the Trump agenda. Um, she seems fearless, like I mean, AOC seems fearless. There's right? a report of the Washington Post that says she demanded a um, a seat on the uh, House Oversight and the Judiciary Committee. That's a big ask. I mean that's a big ask. If you're um if you're a member of Congress and you're asking to be on the um the oversight and judiciary committees, I mean you're asking a lot. Uh, but she says in her book, and I'm quoting her again, I completely deserve it. I feel like I've been treated like, uh, I've been treated like garbage. There you go. I feel like I've been treated um like garbage. Um, she's facing reelection. Um, she seems to be in a good place, but um. There was a debate at the Atlanta Press Club where she said, um, I stand by the words I say. They quoted some of the um, some of the book. They, they recounted some of what she says. And, uh, and then she goes back to um, the part of the swamp and the creatures in the swamp. And um, the words I speak are true and resonate with the American, uh, the Americans back home. The, I think it's the 14th district in Georgia is where she represents. Um, and uh, we'll see. You know, we'll see how this, how this plays itself out. But she's kind of become... I'm um, somewhat of a um a larger than life personality for people who would I, I don't know the mainstream media would describe these people as on the far right. Um, they never describe AOC or the people on the far left that way. Extremism is only in the right, in the right winger. There are no left wingers anymore. There's no extremism 
in the, in the left side of the uh, Democrat Party. It's only right wingers, and um, and now she, you know, they, they'll throw the word Nazi and QAnon and all these other mm-hmm. sorts of things. I mean, there's a lot of risk associated with giving Marjorie Taylor Greene too big a platform. Does she deserve it? I mean, she's not she's not being dishonest when she says I've been the most outspoken. Uh, you know, I've taken the most abuse. Um, I paid more of a price than most of you have paid. Um, yet I don't get the prominent, you know, appointments. I don't get to sit on the, the good committees. I, I have to Didn't kind of they strip um, her of some committee. Sure. I mean, they, yeah, because of some things she said about, I don't know, just QAnon and mm-hmm. some of the, uh, I mean, she's a, uh, a very provocative political personality without question. But, uh, but I just read something yesterday about the Atlanta press club having the debate and she was there and she kind of stands by and doubles down and she wrote a book um about her MAGA loyalty um about some of the power she feels she's entitled to within the GOP caucus um I don't think she's getting it I mean I don't think if Kevin McCarthy is speaker of the house he's given her a lot of um a lot of ability to influence and it's kind of interesting if you're in the 14th district of Georgia do you want somebody that much of a firebrand or would you rather have somebody a little more mild-mannered? I mean, I don't think Blake Masters is any less America First than Marjorie Taylor Greene. He's not as aggressively flamboyant <laughs> in his personality. Um, she's aggressive and she's uh, flamboyant. Take a break. Back in just a few. So is Simon and Garfunkel one of the greatest duos in the history of American pop music or rock music or folk music or whatever it was they sang? Uh, I mean, are they? Freehold, you're the guy who sets all that up. I mean, it's, where is Simon and Garfunkel in the in the pantheon of all time great uh, musical well, artists? Well, Simon did all the work. I mean, Paul Simon, wrote, yeah, he wrote all the songs. He and did. Garfunkel was just kind of there. Yeah, I don't yeah. know if you saw this, but and he turned eighty one. Paul Simon turned eighty one years old um, the day before yesterday. That means I ain't twenty anymore. Well, that's for you, sure. You know what I'm saying? I mean, because yeah. I mean, Paul Simon was a great, great songwriter. Still is, I guess, a great songwriter. Probably doesn't get the credit he deserves as one of the great all-time songwriters in American musical history. I mean, how, you many, how many duos are there? I mean, if you're, if you're trying to name them as one of the top duos well, in music history. I'm such a country boy. I mean, it would be Brooks and Dunn right. and Judds and... Uh, but, but there's not a list of hundreds of duos you could no. probably mention. Well, who could would probably be the, think of. Well, I mean, okay, you're the music guy. I mean, you've been in the biz as long as you have. Well, what is the best duo that you can remember of well, all time? See, I can't even think of. Okay. I mean, McCartney and Lennon come to mind, but they yeah. had two other guys hanging right. around. Yeah, you well, know, really a duo. <laughs> yeah, but they were kind of a duo with two guys hanging around to, yeah. you know, kind of ride their coattails. But, but in uh, in Yano's uh, Freehold's um, example there, the liner, I guess I'm Garfunkel and I'm Oates. I'm just checking. Is that what you meant? I don't know. Dave, you were everybody. Okay. Hall oh, and Oates had a lot of hits. Oh, Dave. they did. I mean, they did. Yeah. I mean, they were jingly yeah. and they were cute. Yep. But they had a lot of hits in, in my youth and... um. And exuberant days. Uh, we talked a lot of politics today. We will not talk politics tomorrow, Thursday, and Friday. We have a commitment to McLeod Health to um, broadcast the Children's Miracle Network. So um, for you political junkies that need this show to get your fix, um, you'll have to find it somewhere else tomorrow, Thursday, and Friday. We'll be on campus at McLeod Health um, in conjunction with the Children's Miracle Network. It's something community broadcasters feels is important. It's giving back to the community. And we're asking you to help us make it a roaring success. So tomorrow morning, we'll be live and in living color at McLeod in the concourse, if I'm not mistaken. We had a bit of a disruption because of COVID and some of the um, restrictions. Uh, but uh, 
we'll get back to business the next That's Monday right. after my beloved Gamecocks upset Texas A&M at home. We'll all be in a cheery and joyful mood. We're 22 days, excuse me, 21 days from the midterm, and there are a lot of states in play. We're having a lot of conversations over the airways about Arizona and Pennsylvania and Georgia and Ohio and some of these swing states. We can't forget to take care of business here. We can't leave our Republican um, uh, you know, candidates in the general election hanging. And one in particular that I've argued is one of the most important elections in this state's history because we have a chance to elect a reformer. I mean, there, there's a reason we've underperformed in education in South Carolina for years and years and years and years, and that's because the status quo has had their way. They've dominated this election, and for the first time in my lifetime, we have a chance to elect a reformer as superintendent of education. I got to believe that Ellen Weaver is going to confront a lot of resistance from what I call the education cartel, um, the education establishment, however you refer to those of. Um, Ellen is on the phone with us, if I'm not mistaken. Ellen, good morning. How are you? Hey, I'm great, Ken. How you doing? So do you care to opine on who you think the greatest duo in the history of American <laughs> music is or not? Well, gosh, that's a that's an awful tough one, but I do love Brooks and Dunn. I'm not going to lie. You kind of hit the nail on the head right there. So. Okay, good deal. Good deal. You get my vote on behalf of your um, selecting of a duo. So, so Ellen, am I, am I trying to be too um, sensational when I argue the, the importance of this election and why we've never, ever had a reformer is because even Republican educators – feel almost obligated to continue the status quo. Is that a proper representation of where you see this election? Yeah, I mean, I think you've done a great job articulating the absolute critical importance of this. I have said from the very beginning of this election that saving our country starts with saving our schools. We are educating the next generation of Americans. And there's a clash of worldviews that is happening in education right now. We see it coming out of the woke Washington mandates that Joe Biden and, and Obama before him have been trying to push down from the federal level into our schools. And, you know, you talk about the education establishment. Sometimes I call them the education empire. I mean, I'll tell you, the reason why reformers don't run for this office is because you are savage. You are brutalized. But you know what? I'm willing to to stand up and to take those slings and arrows because nothing is more important to the future of our state. And, And I also know that people like you, people of good faith and common sense all across this state understand that it's important and they have my back. And that's why I'm willing to, to stand up and take it. You know, um, I, you may have heard I've, I've completed my master's degree, um, which has been one of the hardest things I have ever done in my life, given the short the short time frame that, that I had to do it. But I'm so proud of the hard work that I put into that. And, um, you know, since I announced that, it has been nothing but attack, attack, attack from the left. And that's because they have nothing else to attack me on. But it's an insight into what our teachers face across this state every day. Because if you poke your head up out of the foxhole and try to do things differently or to stand up for something that you believe in, you know, you're bullied by the establishment. So I'm happy to stand up and take those slings and arrows on behalf of the parents of this state, on behalf of the teachers of this state who don't currently feel like they have a voice, and most importantly, on behalf of the students of our state who we have failed for far too long. Ellen, you can't put a campaign agenda on the back of a stamp. 
But but to me, the 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 lack of choice and competition in the education marketplace has not been good for students, parents, the state in general. Do, do you make a pledge to the voters that you will introduce more choice, you will introduce more competition? I mean, obviously, there will be ancillary debates to be had, and there'll be other issues that have to be addressed. But fundamentally, I've always felt the more choice, the more competition we could introduce to the education marketplace, the better the state will be served. Oh, you're absolutely right, Ken. And I'm happy to make that pledge because that is how I have spent the last 10 years of my life fighting to increase those choices for parents. And those choices look different for different families. Um, It could be a charter school. It could be a homeschool. It could be, you know, any variety of of scholarships to a private school. Um, The fact is, is one size doesn't fit all for children. And one size doesn't fit all for teachers either. You look at states like Florida that have some of the oldest and largest school choice programs in the country. And what you see is an education system that is flourishing. In 1998, Florida was behind South Carolina in terms of education outcomes. In the 20 years after that, they introduced a plethora of education choice options under the leadership of Governor Jeb Bush. And and that's something that they really got right. And public education in Florida now is outperforming the rest of the country and stronger than ever. If they can do it in Florida, I know we can do it here. Ellen, this is a red state, but it ain't Wyoming. I mean, if, if, if certain forces align, you could have a very contested race. I don't want people to take it for granted. I mean, there's a sense or a belief that inflation, economy, crime are going to drive a Republican red wave. And, and that could be a mistake. We, we've got to understand how critical this race is and how potentially competitive it could be. Remind people why you think this race is very competitive and, and why they need to make as a priority going to vote in this race. Yes, absolutely, Ken. I can't take anything for granted um, in this race. My opponent is aligned with um, the forces of the national left. Um, She is very closely linked to the National Teachers Association. Um, She has led a labor organizing movement here in South Carolina. And if she had her way, we'd unionize our public schools. I'm going to tell you that is the last that we need to do if we are going to serve students well. We saw in COVID how the national unions politicized science, kept schools closed longer than they should have by putting pressure on the Biden administration and the CDC, and, and, and frankly, just did untold damage to our children. And, and that's not what we need here in South Carolina. We can't go the woke way of Washington. We've got to stand up for the values that we hold dear here in South Carolina, the common sense solutions that we know we can bring to the table to do what's right for our kids. And so, you know, make no mistake about it. Um, I'm a conservative, a lifelong conservative, and as you said, a reformer who wants to get in there with real ideas and shake things up. My opponent is a creature of the left. I mean, she is a radical leftist. She's a Bernie Sanders supporter, you know, love what Bill de Blasio did with education in New York. That's not what we need here in South Carolina. We don't need Washington and New York values. We need South Carolina values. And that's the choice that's in front of us in this election. So, Ellen, last question. How can people find out more? How can they support? Whether make a contribution, a yard sign, volunteer. I mean, we're three weeks out, but it's never too late. 
It is never too late. I need them now more than ever. Um, go to ellenforeducation.com. You can donate, ask for a yard sign. Um, the South Carolina GOP is making calls through their victory campaign, so get in touch with your local GOP office and ask how you can help make phone calls. This is going to be a word-of-mouth election. We have got to turn out our personal network. So if it's just sending 10 emails to your friends and family and reminding them to vote, sending texts, making a couple of phone calls, you know who the people in your life are who need to get out and vote so please take personal responsibility that's what we do as republicans take personal responsibility for your network and make sure that they get out and vote on november 8th ellen i'm not allowed to endorse company policies and i think we violate some fcc you know guidelines uh and i've violated a lot of guidelines in my life but but i will say to our audience this and i mean this sincerely guys um very seldom do you get a chance to vote for somebody who will genuinely change something. The education in South Carolina needs to be changed. It needs to be reformed. It's antiquated. It's, it's, just, it's not performing uh, as it should. And we've got a chance right here, right now, to elect somebody who will sincerely work with the General Assembly to improve education in South Carolina, hence improve economic development, uh, improve the quality of life. All, all of these things will be affected by a better education system in South Carolina. So I'm encouraging all of our listeners to give Ellen Weaver a hard, hard look and and, and potentially support her campaign. Because once again, as a former politician, I've seen the shortfalls and misgivings of education in South Carolina. We ain't going to fix it with the same old, same old. We've got a chance to do something different. Let's do that. Thank you, Ellen. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks, Ken. Talk to you soon. Absolutely. Ellen Weaver, superintendent of education candidate with an R beside her name. And I've said this for years, and Rev can vouch for my belief that the superintendent of education, um, I mean, the superintendent of education can't transform education in South Carolina single-handedly. We're still a state dominated by the General Assembly. Uh, we, we have, um, you know, our legislators come on on Friday. They're going to have to be willing to work with a superintendent of education to reform the way we do things. And I think you heard Dr. O'Malley last week, uh, uh, you know, a fellow educator say, we got to blow it up. I mean, we've got to revamp fundamentally the way we educate young people in South Carolina. It's not performing well. And the one thing we've got to do is address the disparity in some of these educational systems. Um, a kid stuck in a, in a in an impoverished school district, socioeconomically challenged, shouldn't be stuck uh, at failing at education. I mean, we've got to do better than that. We've, we've got to allow, um, I mean, they're government-run schools. I mean, I know that sounds provocative and right-wingish, but I mean, they're government-run schools, but they don't have to be um, monopolies. They don't have to say, hey, because you live in this footprint, you have to send your kid to this failing school. I mean, imagine a kid, imagine a, a parent of a kid who says, I live in a, um, a socioeconomically challenged area, so I have no choice. I don't have the disposable income to send my kid to a private school. I'd love to. Uh, imagine where you wake up one morning empowered by choice of where to educate your kid. And I just think that's got to happen in South Carolina. Let's give credit where credit's due. In the most warped way imaginable, the education cartel has done a marvelous and stupendous job of you know um, not allowing choice and competition into the marketplace of education, and we're significantly underperforming as a result of. We've got to embrace choice. 
We've got to embrace competition. Um, maybe not exactly the choice I'm thinking about or the competition I'm thinking about, but every marketplace that features as part of its uh, design, you know, more choice and competition normally leads to better results. And South Carolina is the fifth fastest growing state in America, but it's not the fifth fastest growing in economic activity. I mean, we've talked a lot about going to the coast of South Carolina. I mean, I make a joke about this place I go to watch college football games. And the Ohio State-Michigan game is a bigger deal than the Clemson-Carolina game, you know, on a given weekend. And um, and look, we welcome these northern aggressors. You know, they, they bring, you know, a lot of assets and, and qualities and attributes to our state. But, but we're, we're becoming less and less dependent upon the income tax. And, and we've got to revamp our education system in South Carolina so we can compete with North Carolina. We can compete with, um, with Georgia. We can compete with an ever-improving Florida. I think it's interesting that Ellen talked about what Jeb Bush did. And Jeb Bush was the education governor. I mean, you know, he might have been a low-energy Jeb to, to um, Trump. And there were some issues there about what the voters wanted and what Jeb brought to the table. But Jeb Bush was a serious man who made as a priority the public education system in, in Florida, revamped, reformed, made it better. What did making it better include? Choice and competition. And we've got to initiate a process in South Carolina that allows choice and competition to be normalized. And the education cartel doesn't want it. I get it. I mean, if you're running a monopoly and you're not real good at it, but you don't have to compete, why would you want to change that? And, and, I, and I applaud Dr. O'Malley for coming over the airways and as a fellow educator, kind of bucking the trend, saying, hey, man, we need to blow this thing up. What we're significantly underperforming in this state at preparing people or kids for a global economy, whether we like it or not. I mean, I don't much care for the global economy. I made that crystal clear. I think the people that get taken advantage the most of are the American workers. But, but I can't change that today or tomorrow. I have to live where we live and operate under the rules that are before me. And right now, we are in a very interconnected economy. We better be prepared, and part of the preparation has to be better educating young people. Look at some of the metrics and measurables. Look at some of the proficiency scores. I mean, we are in decline. I could argue we're in free fall when it comes to public education performance in America compared and, and contrasted with the rest of the world. And we, we've got to do better. We can't let, you know, the education cartel um, who have kind of commandeered the entire system away from performance and, and the student. We've got to make as a, as a priority the student. What is the kid getting out of going to school, K through 12, every single day? I mean, I've told you my opinion on higher education. Uh, we we, we got to do better. I mean, we just really and truly got to buckle down and get better and admit that um, it is a heated competition and to compete, we've got to perform better. And I think Ellen Weaver really offers voters a chance at reform when I never thought that was imaginable. I mean, I really didn't. And I've talked to members of the General Assembly, not just our legislators. I mean, I've talked to some buddies of mine that I've maintained relationships with around the state, and they're more than willing. If Ellen brings some ideas and some concepts to the table, they're willing to go along. So we've got a chance to make education better in South Carolina, let's don't goof it up. Take a break. Back in a minute. How about Captain and Tennille? <laughs> for great duos. Oh, what about it? Yeah, I mean, for great duos of all time. <laughs> oh, right? my goodness. I mean, the Captain and Tennille were a sure. duo, right? 
Uh, I guess. 843 Let's go to the phone. Michael in Florence. Hello, Michael. Good morning. So um, we, we had a, a meeting a few months, a few weeks ago, and there was somebody there from the school board. And, you know, she had this big spreadsheet talking about their budget and everything. And when she was done, she was open to questions. And, and one of the things she talked about was, you know, that our, our teachers need, you know, bachelor's degrees and master's degrees. And apparently that's a state requirement. And, you know, I was asking her, why do I need a bachelor's degree or a master's degree to be teaching, you know, kindergarten, first, second, third graders? I mean, what is it I'm teaching them that I need all this college for? And uh, she didn't really have an answer for me, but a couple other people came up to me later and seemed to think that I had a pretty good point. You know, we, we need to have like an apprenticeship program where, you know, you start out and you're teaching kindergarten, and as you move up, you get to teach first and second and third grade instead of just, um, you know, oh, you've got this piece of paper. The piece of paper doesn't prove anything except that you can get the piece of paper, that you have the money and you spent the time. It really doesn't show, at least in my mind, it doesn't show that you're capable of doing something just because you have the degree. Interesting. Thank you. Appreciate that. And I don't know what the qualifications should be for a teacher. I don't have any idea uh, what sort of certificate and certification and um, and classes should you have taken. I mean, it's obvious if you're going to teach math to a 10th grader, there's got to be a, an understanding, a conceptual understanding of the subject you're trying to um, to teach someone. Um, teaching a kindergartner. I mean, what sort of um, special skill set do you need there? Um I don't know. I mean, I think these are fair questions to ask and fair debates. And here's the problem with government in general. The, the government comes up with a program or a plan, and once it gets implemented, it's hard to adjust. In other words, we don't, if you're in the private sector, which I spent my life, my entire life in the private sector, I'll give you a story. Rev knows this story, and I'll leave the, um, I'll leave everybody nameless to protect the, um, the innocent and guilty. Um, <laughs> but, but Rev and I were confronted uh, a while back about, uh, you know, a, um, not an opportunity, but, but an association. And I am as, as least qualified as you could ever imagine if you look at the formal um, qualifications. In other words, what, what I was being asked to do was going to be a, a bit unique, and it was going to be in a field where, where pedigree and, um, you know, um, qualifications and credentials mean a lot. And the person that we were speaking with said, I don't care how credentialed or qualified you are. I know that you're the person that needs to be doing this with the people and audience I'm talking about. Why? Because I've listened to you talk for years and years and years and years. I'm not concerned about qualifications. I'm not concerned about credentials. I mean, what I want these people to hear is exactly what you say. Well, in the world of education, in the world of, um, what, of academia, that there has to be a check in the box. I mean, there are five boxes. I can't put a check in either, but I know I can do a better job than anybody could who can put a check in all six of those boxes. And Rev knows what I'm talking about. And we've got to get to some mediation of that. We've got to get to a place where, I mean, the guy can't have no checks in the box, but he can't be excluded because he doesn't have six checks in the box. I mean, we, we've got to get to a more pragmatic and, and, um, 
I, I don't know, revisionary look about what we're trying to do and what sort of people need to be involved in this. And you shouldn't have to go get another degree from another online university to make another six or seven or eight thousand dollars to do a job that that degree doesn't really assist or help or enable you to do any better. But we've got this credentialism. I mean, I know that's not a word, but but it is. I mean, there, there's a credentialed part of this that that in, inflates. I mean, it's called degree inflation. I mean, I, you know, I can teach this class as well as anybody ever could, but I'm not credentialed enough. I mean, we've heard story after story about the person who has um, risen through the ranks of junior management, but there's a there's a um, there's a stopping point. Yeah, ceiling. I mean, there's just, I mean, you know, you don't have a college degree. I don't have a college degree. I mean, if you and I got involved in a company, um, I mean, let's say 20 years ago, we decided to do something different and you're a hard worker and I'm a hard worker. You're smart. I'm not so smart, but I can BS my way through (laughs) about anything. Uh, One's a skill. The other's kind of a skill. So next thing you know, you and I end up at this, um, at this place in a, in a, in a company and they say, Rev, we think you can do the job, but we can't allow you to do the job. Ken, we think you can do the job, but we can't allow you to do the job. We've overstated credentials. We've made them more important than they should be. We've not given the people running these entities and enterprises the discretion they need to let Dave Baker do a job that they know he can do. Why? Because he doesn't have that credential. He doesn't have that um that check in the box. And I think the system is is ill served when, when somebody does have a check in in that box. And um, you know. Should someone teaching kindergarten have a teaching certificate? I don't know. I don't have any idea. But but once we decide, yes, they do, we never revisit it. The government said, you know, the, the teachers lobby, the education association said, okay, got to be a check in this box or else you can't do it. And then 20 years down the road, we say, well, why does somebody have to have a check in that box to be allowed to do that job? I don't know, man. 20 years ago, somebody decided that. You see where I'm headed? Mm-hmm. The private sector has no choice but to bob and weave, but to evolve, but to change, but to try to get better at whatever it is. Why? Because you have a choice to not go to that business. Why? Because there's competition in that marketplace. And it really goes back to the two words, choice. What if a parent had a choice to send their kid to a kindergarten with a certified teacher or not? And what if the competition factor of that choice led them to believe that the school that allows a kindergarten teacher to teach without having a certificate, but those kids perform better. I mean, it's the nature of capitalism. It's the nature of the private sector. And we've got to implement some more of those concepts or precepts into some of the public sector. And I've said it, I'll say it again. The public sector has done an amazing job of insulating itself from market forces. And that is one of the great misgivings of the public sector. That's why, by and large, the public sector underperforms because they've escaped the reality that the private sector has to deal with every day, that being the, the, the realities of competition and of choice. And, and nothing about the public sector is going to get better until we force them to compete, until we allow the consumer to have different choices. 843-661-0937. Let's go to the phone. David in the PD. Hello, David. Hey, good morning. Uh, you guys mentioned uh, Simon and Garfunkel. McCartney and Lennon. And see, when you add those names, you add Elvis Presley, that's the ultimate Southern boy. I would encourage anybody to listen to Bridge Over Treble Waters and uh, get back yesterday with Elvis. 
uh, and, and Ken used picking old Mike earlier. Uh, Mike grew up in the Jerry Seinfeld world. He don't know about Jerry Clower. Could give him one of them tapes. They have listened to that. Jerry Clower. We grew up in that world. He might understand how we grew up. Thank you, David. Appreciate that. Um, I don't know that Mike would understand anything Jerry Clower said. <laughs> <laughs> if Jerry Clower said 100 words, Mike would say, I don't understand 98 of those. I don't speak that that language that you and Jerry Clower um, speak one, one uh, or, or back and forth, too. But 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 I want to get back to the problem because I think this is an important argument. And I'm not by any stretch of the imagination saying, and I keep reiterating this because I don't want to hurt feelings. I want to get on the bad side of anybody. Um, it's not that I dislike the public sector. I mean, I think there are very competent people in the public sector. I believe that. I've served in a gubernatorial capacity. I mean, I've worked for the government, so to speak. I mean, I was on a county council, and I was lieutenant governor of a state. So so I watched government at work, very up close and personal. I tried to understand, you know, okay, what is this department responsible for? What, what are they in charge of? How much assets, I mean, how many assets do they need? What sort of budget should they have? There's just not enough of that in the public sector. And, you know, I've even argued, I mean, I'm being a hypocrite here because what did I say this morning about, you know, waste, fraud, and abuse? I mean, I said, don't pay attention to the welfare programs. Don't pay attention to the other um, six or seven who are wasting your money. Forget supplemental security income. Forget supplemental nutrition assistance program. Forget child's health insurance program. Forget temporary assistance to needy families and the housing assistance and the earned income tax. Forget all that. Let's pay attention to Medicaid because that's the driver of the debt. So, so in essence, I'm talking out both sides of my mouth when I say we've got to demand of some of these government agencies more performance or better performance or more competency. But, but, but two and a half hours ago, I said, don't worry about any of that because of the $1.3 trillion that we spend on, you know, some of the entitlement programs or some of the, um, they're not even needs-based. I mean, these would be, I mean, you could just get, uh, you know, you can, apply for food stamps and get free uh, housing assistance. You can apply for that and get it. Um, but, but I mean, I, I'm being very hypocritical in saying that we need to demand more of the private sector, unless we're talking about $1.3 trillion. Don't worry about the $500 billion that the other seven government agencies are wasting. Pay attention to $1.3 trillion, excuse me, the $800 billion of the $1.3 trillion that Medicaid is in charge of. Um, it's a little bit like I've got a friend in the restaurant business and he told me, uh, a long time ago, he said, look, man, I don't mind my employees stealing my lemons. I mean, I wish none of my employees stole, but, but I'm, I'm realistic. I mean, I've been in business a long time. I've had a lot of employees. A lot of these folks are going to take something. I don't mind them taking the lemon or the lettuce. I just don't need them stealing my shrimp or my ribeye. We all have a, a kind of a pragmatic view on uh, obviously, we wish our business was perfect. Um, Rev and I have this um, kind of a back and forth. Um, there are six or eight or nine advertisers that we worry about all the time. You know, they're kind of the underpinning of this show. Um, we got to make sure they're taken care of. It's not that we don't care about the one that comes every now and then. Of course we do. We care a lot about them. But that's kind of the lemon. I mean, we understand those are going to come and go. The, the people that we forged and built relationships with we got to make sure we take care of those people better than they expect. Some of that private sector mindset needs to happen to the government. What if this was a government-run radio show? 
I mean, what if this was NPR and I worked for the government and Rev worked for the government and Freehold worked for the government and NPR was going to get funded at X number of dollars every year? It doesn't matter if one person listens or 50 million people listen. It doesn't matter if we have um, every advertising slot field or no advertising slot field. What is my motivation to be better? What is my motivation to provide some sort of an entertaining product that, that requires you tuning in? You see where I'm headed? And we've got to, when the public sector controlled about, you know, 10, 15% of the economy, not a big deal. We can afford to let them screw some things up. <laughs> but all of a sudden, we, go, we wake up one day and the government's in control of roughly half of all commerce that's transacted in the country and, and they don't get it right. I mean, we have a, a net negative effect. We have a lot of money being spent that we're not getting banged for that buck. And that's the point I've always tried to make. And, I, and I've said this, and I say it to be a bit provocative, but I believe it. The public sector has declared war. I don't think it was intentional. I think it's very unintentional. But the public sector has declared war on the private sector, and the public sector does not have to play by the same rules that, that are pressed upon or forced them upon or mandated by the realities of the private sector. Two of those prominent realities being choice, you the consumer have, and the competition that makes all of us better. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937. I can tell you the greatest duo as far as I'm concerned, cheeseburger and fries. <laughs> I don't, I don't okay. Think, I mean, I was thinking about the greatest duo of all. Yeah, cheeseburger and fries. Um, <laughs> if I were on death row, I hope I never am, but if I were on death row and somebody said, you know, your last meal, it would probably be cheeseburger and fries. Um, nachos would be a close second, but, um, but I'm kind of old school when it comes to... Uh, I splurge on the weekend, and one of my cheat meals is always a cheeseburger and fries. It's never one of these, um, you know, uh, one of these expensive, you know, uh, what am I trying to say here? Out of the ordinary sort of meals. So you splurge on a cheeseburger, not on uh, filet mignon. No, 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 no. It costs too much now, man. Oh, Rev and no I are having a conversation. How many people feel this way? Um, things have gotten so expensive that we, we'd rather eat in our truck or car then go in somewhere knowing you got a tip. I mean, the person deserves to be tipped. So <laughs> right. when you think about it, inflation is causing consumers to make decisions that are hurting wait staff. Because, you I you know, know you, you won't. I mean, I've always been kind of a $10 lunch, $20 dinner kind of guy. Good I mean, luck. I'm not a foodie. I've said, oh, good luck. Yeah. I mean, you know, where can you eat for $10? I mean, you can eat a, a good dose of high fructose corn syrup and food glue. But you're not getting real food. I mean, you know, lunch has become a $13, $14, $15 ordeal. And if you sit down somewhere, there's another three or four bucks as a tip. And, I mean, it's, you know, lunch is all of a sudden $20. Um, and, it's, and it's unfair to the wait staff because they're kind of, um, I mean, they're getting left out of some of these transactions because people are making a decision. In other words, you go inside of a restaurant and you pay 12 bucks, 13 bucks for lunch. And then you've got to you got to be fair to the to the wait staff. You got to tip and you know 15, 20, 20, whatever your number is. You add that to the, to the bill, uh, or do you stay in your truck and go to a drive-through, uh, or pick it up in a bag and you know eat? It? People are making these sorts of decisions, and it has a big effect or impact on um, what I call low-wage earners. Some of these um some of these jobs that don't make a lot of money, they're making even even less money. So inflation um, really and truly affects the working class more than it does anybody. And you're nodding your head. I mean, have you made any adjustments regarding that? Absolutely have. Um, you, you have to consider that. 
when you do decide where you're going to eat. I mean, my, my example is I really got in the habit of tipping for carryout ever since the pandemic. I remember back in those days when trying to help the people that were showing up. For right. Work. And, and I really I made, I made an effort uh, to do that. And now I've had to reconsider that and not do it because because of the price of the meal has just gotten so high. And I, I mean, and it's and not, I hate that because yeah, I, sure, I, sure. I really felt like I, I was going to keep doing that because I wanted to. But as much as you love the server, you love Dave Baker more. Well, that's true. Uh, sure you do. I mean, I, and I do as well. I mean, I love Ken Arden more than I love Dave Baker. I love Dave <laughs> Baker, but I love Ken Arden Understand. even more. Understand. Talking about um, burgers and fries being the greatest duo of all time, it's time for our Takes Mondays to make Friday's trivia question, courtesy of and sponsored by... Our good friends at Pepsi. Wait, we're, uh, we're doing it on Tuesday? Yeah, we're doing it. It takes Tuesdays to make okay. Friday trivia question. We got sidetracked yesterday, and we won't be on the air talking politics tomorrow, Thursday, and Friday. We'll be on the air, but we'll be in the concourse of a cloud health talking about the Children's Miracle Network. So um, we may or may not do a trivia question Friday, but we're going to do one today. It's debatable. What is the greatest duo of all time? I mean, we've debated. Is it this? Is it that? I'm arguing burgers and fries. <laughs> but one duo has sold more records than anybody in history. What duo has been most successful selling albums, you know, records, CDs than any other? 843-661-0937. The best selling Musical duo ever is 843-661-0937. The number, thanks to our good friends at Pepsi of Florence for sponsoring this um, Takes Mondays to Make Fridays trivia question put back until Takes Tuesdays to Make Fridays. Do we have a call? Uh, we do. Hi, you're on. You know the answer? It's a Hall of Notes. It is. Hall of Notes. They were never taken seriously by the musical establishment but had a huge fan base and enormous success. Who is this? Is where you calling from? Hey, this is Robin and Florence. Okay, my man. Thank you for calling. Thank you for listening. I'll hand you back off to Freehold. He'll get your information, and we'll get you a couple of um, Text Mondays to Make Fridays T-shirts. And uh, do we have any Text Tuesdays to Make Fridays? I don't think so. I don't think we'll we do. So it'll be a Take Monday to Make Friday T-shirt and a six pack of Pepsi. A couple of six pack. Uh, no, a single six pack of Pepsi product. Um, courtesy of our good friends at Pepsi of Florence. So one of the great sites on the internet or one of the great uh, video podcasts or whatever you would call it is live from Daryl's house. If you haven't seen, speaking it of is Hall great. Notes, it is great. Um, so Daryl Hall has a studio at, at a house somewhere and he invites artists over and they just jam. I mean, the hit songs. I mean, one of my favorite is the Joe Walsh. I mean, they play all the Joe Walsh classics and, and, and Daryl and his band is there, and they and it's good. They it, are phenomenal. Like I mean, it is great. Very They actually do one at Darius Rucker's house in Charleston. Yeah, I saw I that mean, one They too. show up at Darius's house and set up, and, and you're right. I mean, it's, it's jamming with, with guys that – um, and I think Daryl Hall has his own band, you know mm -hmm. what I mean, and they do their thing. Um, I'm trying to think. There's a, there's a Motown group that they have in and it, i mean the way they i don't know they personalize it, it. the ojs yeah it might have been Maybe. the ojs I think, I think it is I think the ojs v very i mean entertaining extremely extremely entertaining the things you can find on youtube <laughs> what can't you find on youtube would probably be better but hall and oats uh the best-selling musical duo of all time enjoy your day we'll see you tomorrow from the concourse at mcleod health children's miracle network